You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 15, Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, possibly his best Stephen King adaptation that's not actually a Stephen King adaptation, and also the apex of his career. Martin. Yes. It's not your fault you were born woefully fucking unfunny. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. How are you, sir? I'm great. Excited to dive into some Flanagan this week. I know. So we this is kind of our, I suppose, early audible. Um, kind of like what we did with the first season with The Empty Man and David Pryor. Same thing, yeah. Um, is that we just saw something that we really liked, and we're like, I want to record about this because I want to talk about it. Um and we're both huge Flanagan fans, so Flana fans, Flanophiles, <laughs> if you were, yeah, Fan- to, Fanagans. <laughs> yeah, it's we need to stop doing. I, this. I apologize. Yeah, already. Yeah, this episode sucks. But <laughs> uh, Martin, this was technically my pick, but as soon as I basically pitched it to you, you were like, "Yeah, in one hundred percent." So why? Were you instantly in on doing Midnight Mass, a Netflix, uh, I guess, miniseries is what we're going to call it, or that now they're limited series? Limited, yeah. Um, you know, that only came out like a week and a half, two weeks ago at this point. And yeah, it hasn't even been two weeks. We're already like, yep, this is part of the cult canon. Don't give a fuck. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting you mentioned The Empty Man because it's very similar kind of timing where you had seen it and messaged me or like, I. Th- you got to watch this like now. Like I was, I was going to watch it anyway. Cause I love Flanagan. But yeah. then you like, you know, I get this text from you, you're three episodes in and you're like, um, this is his Salem's lot. And for our listeners, Salem's lot's my favorite book of all time. Like it's my number one favorite book, my favorite Stephen King book and period, my favorite book. And which I didn't actually know that when I sent you that <laughs> message, I was just literally like, Oh, Martin's going to love this because it's, it's so Kingy and it's so fucking it's Salem's Lot. It is 100% him doing his version of Salem's Lot, just, you know, riffing, more or less. And I, and we get into this. I feel bad because they've been prepping, like, James Wan and Gary Dauber have been prepping a remake, and they're going to throw us, like, fuck. Yeah, they might as well just throw that out the window now. Because this kind of already hits a lot of the good stuff and leaves out any of the bad stuff. What Dauberman also sucks. Um, but Also, after seeing Malignant, I just want James Wan to keep making, like, weird... One for me, like scumbag movies like that. hundred percent. Yeah. Like I don't want you doing anything that could remotely approach respectable at this point. Like just give me all the trash and like Aquaman sequels. Like if he needs to make these terrible DC movies to basically finance it. And the first Aquaman is actually pretty good. It's a lot of fun. Swashbuckling. But like if he needs to do those so that he can just give us movies that are as bonkers as malignant, fine, whatever. 
No, agreed. And when it comes to Flanagan, you know, I've Haunting Hill House was a show that really blew me away because until that point, I'd seen a lot of shows try to do horror as a a horror narrative stretched out over eight, ten episodes is really difficult to do. Like, how do you keep how do you keep like the horror up? You know, it's like the whole idea of like, just get the fuck out of there. In an hour and a half movie, it's like more contained. It's hard to plot, I feel like, a more epic like TV series. And I'm not a fan of American Horror Story. I don't like Ryan Murphy. He was kind of doing similar stuff. Um, but Flanagan really brought with Haunting Hill House, and I, I mean Bly Manor and now Midnight Mass, like you mentioned King, that sentimentality and that like humanism that's just like just runs throughout all his stuff. And well, so you get this really emotional experience, like really, really kind of deep characters and, and the love between them and some pretty profound, like human truth that he, he gets to in his work mixed with like some great genre, like horror shit, like pulpy stuff and all of them. I feel like, yeah, he's, he's really great at both. That's what makes him in my opinion, possibly the best working American horror filmmaker like right now. Um, but also like it, we, we instantly make the Salem's lot <clears throat> comparison with uh, midnight mass, but like haunting of Hill house is it too. Like it basically has the same structure as it and does it better than the it movies did. Also Gary Doberman again. Yeah. <laughs> same shit so, screenwriter. Sorry. So. <laughs> Mike Flanagan just has a fucking vendetta against Doberman at this point where he's like, yeah, you think you're going to do fine? Well, I'm going to do my version and it's going to be fucking better, which it is because, I mean, to me, Haunting of Hill House is like one of the best pieces of filmed media in my, I think my lifetime, at least the last 10 years for me, it's, it's one of the things that has emotionally it just emotionally resonated with me in a way that I was not prepared for. Like I was a bawling mess after some of those episodes and we can get into that later. Cause I also was like, that's the other thing I think that really works about midnight mass is that I, I am an emotional wreck after certain portions of it. But at the same time, he's doing these adaptations like haunting of Hill house is, an adaptation. It's yeah. a Shirley Jackson novel, but not really. It's the completely not. The, it's the he uses the elements of the novel, right? Um, and very the novel is very close to the haunting, the Robert Wise film. Um, that's right. a very good adaptation um, of the actual novel, and he takes the elements and the character, even names, and just like jumbles them up. And like Theo is this. It's interesting because, like, in the Theo in the in the film and in the book is hints that being a lesbian. Yeah, she's coded as queer. She's coded as queer and has a relationship, a somewhat uh, charged relationship with Nell. Right. Um, which, while in the film in the in the show, it's her sister, and it's a whole different kind of thing. And and Theo's just clearly gay, and it like that's just part first of time the you show. see her. She's yeah, at, exactly. She's, she's at a, she's at a bar and and picks up a girl and. Um, We'll say, get Katie Siegel, uh, Flanagan's wife and, and collaborator, um, who's amazing. Um, collaborator for now seven years, I think. 
10. Oh, no, almost 10, because Oculus is the first. Now she has that like she's Because she has a bit part in Oculus, and I think she also pro- was a producer on it. Um, because he, we'll, we'll kind of get into this later, and I'm, I'm going to throw the article up on our Twitter feed when we release this episode, but like Flanagan wrote this very, very long, heartfelt uh, kind of history on Midnight Mass and how long it took because he's been basically toying with this story for over a decade. Yeah. Um, and he refers to, he wrote it for Bloody Disgusting and it's very, very uh, in, both informative and also moving because it's it's coming from the same kind of uh, very real place that a lot of his like writing and stuff mm. in, the, in the, the movies do. Um, but he talks about like, how Oculus, he terms Oculus his first real movie. I might be butchering what he actually says, but it's like basically like his official movie. Like he has Jason Blum producing it, but he references specifically that Katie Siegel, it's their first collaboration together. And like, cause she's in it. She, I, I believe produced it as well. Did and they like, meet on that? I don't know. I think he makes it sound like they knew each other before okay. they didn't meet on it. But she was basically helping get it made more or less. Right. Cause she was, um, one of the reasons I was also excited about, um, this, this episode to talk on Mike Flanagan was I saw the premiere of Oculus at South by Southwest in 2014. Right. Um, and it, yeah, it was that we talked about it was the night with the, the horrible car, um, car, car violence, you know, I was in that screening and, um, I remember those cool because Katie Siegel was there with right. Flanagan and they were like being interviewed after it was not a lot of people were there it was at the midnight screening. Right. And, but I, I, I didn't love Oculus as much, but it was so polished and I, I, they were so fucking cool to hear. Like it was one of my first screenings at South by period. And I'm just like wanting to be a filmmaker. And I'm like, wow, this is like what it's like. And so to watch them like go for this, this like room of like probably 18 people watching their movie to now this, what it's theater cool. was it at? Was it, was it at the Ritz? Side, oh, okay. Yeah, stateside and um, downtown Austin. Yeah, um, and but it's cool, and I, I have no like personal connection then beyond it's like oh, it's cool to see, you know I was there when they were doing that, and now I'm watching this kind of magnum opus for both of them because she also just like is fucking amazing in Midnight Mass. The performance she her her monologue we'll talk about later. You know, it's amazing what she brings. Yeah, and that's the. It was the first movie he had to premiere at South by, right? Because Absentia... I think so, yeah. I believe that played at, like, some, like, genre stuff and maybe, like, Slam Dance or something, but, like, uh, Oculus... Kind of budget movie, anyway. Well, and, like, Jason Blum has a really good relationship with South by after uh, Insidious, right? Premiered there. I think so. Um, That was before my time coming here. And Paranormal Activity... Right, I, I believe played there too. So he's kind of had a long-standing relationship with them. Um, they also have a good relationship with Universal because they even had like Jordan Peele's Us as like the the opening, opening night. night movie yeah. the one year. Um, but anyway, because he had Oculus and then Hush premiered at yep. South by Two, mm-hmm. um, also starring Katie Siegel as the uh, the mute and deaf author of, of Midnight the book, Mass. <laughs> Midnight Mass. And then she plays the central character in Midnight Mass, which is interesting. Also, the first time that we see the book, I believe in, in Hush, is she's being given a copy or asked to sign a copy by the actress who plays more or less the villain 
of Midnight Mass, Bev Keen. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. So I haven't, I, to be honest, I haven't seen Hush in quite a, in quite a while. Um, I I like it a lot. Um, and that's like another thing where it was cool. Like they were both there and at South by, and it was like, Oh, these guys are back again. Again, they weren't huge yeah. yet. Um, and this is all, I, I feel like it wasn't in my mind until I wasn't, I feel like it wasn't a, they weren't on the scene until haunting a Hill house. Like that's when people started talking big about, Fl- actually, I think, well, I think here's, Ouija, here's what Ouija, was weird. Ouija got some serious press. Too. We, Ouija. Yeah. It got decent reviews. Um, and that was the one I believe where the cult of Flanagan more or less began because like, I remember talking to, I believe it was like Brad Henderson mm. from vinegar syndrome and because he was a really, really early like Mike Flanagan fan, and he would tell me about him. But he's like, "Oh, this is the next dude." I'm like, "Okay." And he, I'm like, "Well, what movies?" And he's like, "Well, he just made Ouija too." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna sit through that. Are you fucking kidding me?" And then he told me about, it, and then I looked him up, and it was like, "So this guy made a movie for Blumhouse. He made this car. Like, I like Hush. Yeah. It's fine." But it's, you know, kind of like The Strangers, more or less. It's like a Carpenter knockoff where it's just, it's a you Netflix know, guy, guy being or, you know, woman being stalked in her house by an evil guy in a mask. Um, it's a real more or less kind of formal experiment because Wait, he's playing with a lot of. of yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. With Katie Siegel very much in like the Audrey Hepburn uh, role. But like. It's him playing around. He's fucking around. He's really honing his craft on that. And that's one of the things I really want to talk about in, in terms of like his Netflix output versus his feature work. Because for me, I just watched Oculus Today for the first time. I had never actually seen that one. And that movie, like a lot of his features, feels almost like a dry run, more or less for what he would, like themes and 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 storytelling ideas that he would get to expand upon because obviously he's getting a bigger budget with Netflix, but he just has more time to play as opposed to making a 104 minute, I believe Oculus runs, you know, Blumhouse film. He's making a 10 hour uh, Netflix, more or less like giant movie that's cut up into a series and sequence so that you can, you know, watch it per episode or you can binge it or however the fuck you want to consume streaming content these days. But like Oculus deals with a lot of the same shit that Hill House does because it's like familial trauma, brother and sister relationship. One's very doubtful, kind of like the Michael Huisman character in uh, Hill House. He's not quite the con man. Like, yeah. Like Huisman's character is, but he gets out of jail because he actually shot their father again. But that's another thing that kind of ties it to Hill House is that you have at least one parent who violently has their life violently ended in their family house at the time. And then they have to more or less return to that family house and live through that trauma and also confront the supernatural forces that may have been at play. Plus, he's jumping back and forth in time periods the same way that he does with Hill House. Only with Hill House, he does, you know, the it structure to where, like, we meet all of the characters, all the family from from Hill House um, when they're 
uh, older, and then we flash back to how, when they're kids. But you do that too in Oculus, to where we meet. Uh, is it? It's Karen Gillan. Mm-hmm. Is that how you say your name? Uh, Kieran Gillan. I think. Is it Kieran Gillan? I, I think I'm. I'm pl- I always butcher Karen. it. Yeah. And then Brenton Thwaites. Yes. Uh, <laughs> neither one has uh, names that actual humans have, but like, um, you know, we meet them when they're adults, and then we flash back 11 years to when you know, something very horrible happens with this haunted mirror between their mom and dad. Roy Cochrane from fucking Days and Confused plays the dad. And then the mom is that actress who looks like a hybrid of, it's almost like if you put Jessica Chastain and Bryce Dallas Howard in the Brundle like fly pod (laughs) together and you just got like Jessica Howard, I guess. I, I don't know what, I can't remember what her name is. I would have to look it up. But she essentially is tortured and murdered by the dad. And then the kid, you know, picks up the gun and shoots his dad and goes away for many, many years. And then they have to basically come back and confront both that occurrence and the uh, forces that inhabited this mirror. But I mean, like, that's Hill House. That's just fucking Hill House. Hill House is just 10 hours long and way more, um, let's say, elegantly composed yeah, both both <laughs> as as like like Flanagan at that point found his voice like you watch Oculus and it's clear like there's stuff about it like all the stuff that I basically just laid out but there's also like little visual cues and stuff like the first time we're <clears throat> like introduced to the family house like he does one of his very elaborate kind of steady cam where the, the camera is just weaving in and out and it feels like a one take. It's never as long or ost- as ostentatious, obviously as like episode the four. whole episode of Hill house where it's just done entirely in like one shot that jumps back and forth between time periods and everything, which is one of the most brilliant pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen in my fucking life. But like, Again, he you can pick up on the, the little stylistic ticks that are there, but it's clear that he knew he was a first-time director. He's working for Jason Blum, who's more or less the Roger Corman yeah. of, of the modern kind of horror era, uh, who just, you know, picks young filmmakers, finances their low-budget projects. But, like, at the end of the day, you're allowed to make your movie, but you have to deliver a Blumhouse film. They have to be able to sell it. And you, when you watch Oculus, it's very much a post sinister, sinister paranormal activity insidious. Like they were going to position it. Cause it came out the same year as the conjuring. No, no, it was made in 2013 and came out in 2014 and the conjuring's 2013. Yeah. But you're right on like, that's what that was like peak Blumhouse more or less when like, that whole uh, mini studio was becoming a real powerhouse on these supernatural thrillers. And Flanagan delivered another one, you know, that, that they couldn't market and, and sell. And he just smuggled some of his earliest, let's say, auteurist ticks and storytelling ideas into it. Yeah. Um, well, Conjuring was Warner Brothers, though. It wasn't Blumhouse, right? I thought, oh no, yeah, you're right. That is WB, isn't it? So um, real quick, I have a friend and I won't name him, but he was interviewing Jason Blum and he goes, oh, I love the Conjuring movies. And Blum's like, we didn't do those. (laughs) I always mix them up too. Is it just because of Juan and Insidious, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they, they, it is a post 
uh, insidious movie. Like yeah. that's at the beginning of it. I do also mix them up too because I just lump them. Honestly, anymore, if it's a huge hit and it's in horror, I more or less just assume Jason Blum has a, a toe in it. Let's say right, exactly. And it's really funny. It's just the re- I wanted to tell that story. That was so because he was just like, oh, I didn't, I didn't make that. Yeah. Thing. As soon as you said that too, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. All of fucking Wands movies. Pretty much stretching back to the Conjuring now that that I think about it. R W B. Yeah, he he has a deal with them, and obviously, yeah, I mean uh, Aquaman, his whole deal with DC. Well, and Malignant um, was WB because I mean that's how it premiered on HBO Max too. Yeah, and um, but anyway, no, I, I like I like what you're saying about the kind of like the dry run idea, and what's interesting about Flanagan, and I thinking back on my experience with Oculus in the theater, I think I I hadn't put it into those words that you just did, but I was really liking the family and character stuff. And then it, like you said about like the end is just kind of like shoehorned, like house of horrors stuff. Yeah. I think is, I said that off Mike is that like the last 20 minutes is just, that's when it feels the most like we're, he's delivering a thing that they can set, they can cut into a trailer and sell. It's just like now comes the supernatural horror thing, which still has some pretty fucked up, Flanagan-y stuff like when like Roy Cochrane is just like like mutilating his own hands like that's how the first signs that he's starting to get possessed or like the the mirrors like really kind of uh, the overtaking him he like Flanagan hates hands he loves hand trauma because yeah. of this Gerald's game has Dr. the Sleep. worst one Doctor Sleep yeah where um uh, Rebecca rose the hat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where she gets her hand jammed into the, to Abra's like little mind file and it like crushes it more or less. Well, it's called degloving the idea of like, Oh, okay. Pulling your skin off. Like it's a real thing. Well, and they full D de- well, and the full D glove is, is Gerald's oh, game. Jesus I remember Christ. watching Gerald's game at a fantastic fest press screening at nine in the morning, hung over his shit. And when that fucking scene comes where she skins her entire hand to get out of that bed and like literally rips like a a huge portion of her flesh off, I almost threw up on myself. Like it was almost day old beer that came out of my stomach. It was just like, (laughs) like all over the floor because I was just like, wow, what the fuck is Flanagan's things with hands? Like he just hates hands, I guess. It's well, it's so, um, there's something really visceral about hands, you know, sure. and, 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 and tender, like you have all the, just like the tendons. So there's like, I think a lot of horror, the idea of like, you know, getting a cut in a weird part of your hand, or like obviously the classic, like taking a fingernail off. There's just so much delicate shit there, but mm. I agree. He's like obsessed with that. And, you know, I, I was, I kind of, after seeing Oculus, again, I thought they were cool, but I, was like, I didn't really love the movie. Cause I think you're totally right. The end is trying to be, Hey, what's our what's our horror pitch here for the audience? Yeah. Like, oh, it's a haunted mirrors, but it gets lost in like trying to be like a like oh, this is gonna be a be a great sequel for this too because it's about a haunted mirror. It's gonna be this universe. You can see Blum thinking in that way. Well, and you can also see like Flanagan had you that movie looks like it was from a storytelling perspective almost reverse engineered because he was like. This is the end point. And for those of you who haven't seen Oculus, I'm sorry, spoiler alert. He's literally trying to get to the end to where it doesn't matter. The sister and the mom were always going to die. There was nothing you could do to prevent it. And that kid was going to get carted away by the police, both as a child and as an adult again. And that was, you, you could tell like that was just his ending. And he goes, well, how do I get from here 
to hear and and also deliver the 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 Blumhouse of it all, let's say. Um, and he does a fine job, like it works, but that's the movie where he feels the most like a carpenter. Like he's just mm. he's just building a thing. It's a great chair that you can sit in while you eat, but you're never going to just look at that chair and go, well, that should be the centerpiece of my living room. You know, like it's not until later. And, and again, as he works out like his stylistic tics with like Hush and then Ouija, Ouija is the first one because uh, it's Origin of Evil is yeah. the uh, subtitle on it is that's the first one that feels the most like a fully formed Mike Flanagan movie, even though it's a sequel to a movie I've never even seen. Um, but it's a self-contained movie. It contains all of the Flanagan players that would come, you know, yep. come forward and basically be in Hill House and Midnight Mass, Bly Manor, uh, Bly Manor, because you've got Henry Thomas as a priest. Um, you have Elizabeth Reeser as the main psychic, and then the one little girl She's was gonna... the little girl from Hill House too. She plays young. Shirley, I she believe. plays the young Reeser. Yeah, like which is funny that she played her daughter, and then. But that movie yeah. is very, and even like, because I believe it's also shot by. He uses the same crews over and over again. That is the the one thing that's very interesting is that like, the Newton, it's the Newton boys or the Newton brothers. No, the Newton boys is the Richard Linklater movie. Yeah, the the Newton brothers have scored all of his movies since uh, Oculus, and then. I'd have to look it up, but the same cinematographer has shot the majority mm. of his stuff since Oculus, and he shoots uh, Ouija, and the, the Ouija looks like the, it, it looks exists like in the same <laughs> world as Hill House and Midnight Mass and everything. There's a very... Um, Baroque is actually probably the, the best way to put it that you, that you said, is that it has this almost softness like you and period setting to it that like you're existing inside of like a, not necessarily a memory, but like, you know, you're watching a story, you know, you're watching a piece of pulp of something that has like real artifice to it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I love, you know, it's, it's funny that so much horror is obsessed and I'm not saying about Flanagan, but it's obsessed with like seventies aesthetic. Cause they're like, Hey, we're going to do like a Texas chainsaw look. You know, and it tries to have that kind of grittiness and look of like the seventies. I feel like Flanagan is like mid-century modern, <laughs> like mixed with like a really great like smoking room. Like everything has his, his production design too is very yeah. consistent. Of because you look at like the the house in the Haunting Hill House versus the film The Haunting, and it's it's a Flanagan house. Like down to mm -hmm. down to the last brick is very much a look for him. Same with same with Bly Manor. Um, I, you know, I think that he's he's interesting too. That you were saying about his, um, you know, his obviously his connection to King, and you know he's done two King adaptations um, with Doctor Sleep and and Gerald's Game, and two of the the better King adaptations of the the last, you know, I'd say 10, 15 years or ever. And especially I rewatched for the first time, you had told me to watch the uh, director's cut of Dr. Sleep. And it's really cool to watch. I watched the, the making of afterwards, like he and Stephen King talking about the project and Stephen King says, well, 
I wrote The Shining when I was an alcoholic. Right. And I wrote Dr. Sleep. After I was sober after, and brain damaged, frankly. It was after the car, you know, yeah. after the well, he got hit by the van. And that was him kind of getting back into the story of The Shining, but also coming out the other side of alcoholism. And it was interesting because from what Flanagan talks about, I think in the Bloody Disgusting article and other interviews for Yeah, Midnight he goes Mass, into to his sobriety, which also plays a huge role in Midnight Mass, too. A huge part of Midnight Mass and Dr. Sleep. And he, doing the math, when they made Dr. Sleep, he might have still been just on the, the cusp of getting out of being an alcoholic. Yeah, because I think it's been like four or five years that he's been sober. Right. So he was newly, newly, newly sober. Newly sober. And... Um, it's interesting that he then makes Dr. Sleep and it feels like his view of like alcohol and alcoholism and addiction is his, is morphed somewhat in midnight mass. Um, it, it feels like Riley, well, he has a more, Riley's characters are much more cynical view at moments of, of like redemption you know, because I, I feel like Dan and it, partly, I, he's, partly he's beholden to the novel of Dr. Sleep. And so Dan Torrance has to be he has to be an alcoholic who becomes sober and becomes like a hero. that's yeah, that's part of that arc with him. Is he's rejecting again a, a very Flanagan theme. He's rejecting the sins and burdens of his his dad, yep. you know, of like what was passed down through his own you know DNA, more or less. And which is I mean, that's trademark. Flanagan shit right there. Yeah. But yeah, I think my thing with the, the whole uh, alcoholism aspect of Midnight Mass, which we should probably get to Midnight Mass eventually on the Midnight Mass episode. Yeah. Um, but, you know, is uh, he talks about in that bloody disgusting article that he had been writing this story for over a decade. So this is the work of a guy who conceived it while he was still on booze. And he even in that article, it's it's one of the most touching things is that he's, if you've ever had any struggles with addiction or whatever, like he talks very, very candidly about them in, in ways that if you have struggled with it, you can, truly relate to but i wondered because he he says that midnight mass first started as a novel yeah that he was writing and then he tried to make it into a feature screenplay and got 150 pages in and it was the first uh meeting between riley and uh the monsignor in their first uh, aa meeting and he was like well clearly this isn't gonna fucking work because we're not even at the halfway point we're two and a half hours into this and then he conceived it as a series to where he was pitching it to like regular networks and i would imagine like you know amc or or hbo or a, a lot of like the prestige cable type stuff because this isn't something that you would see on like a abc or whatever no. it's way too gnarly but I wondered if the cynicism in Riley is because it's the work of a guy who started this tale mm. when he was a drunk and got to actually bring it to life when he was sober. So both of those voices, like, cause you're a different pe like you're a different yeah. person from when you were a drunk to when you were sober. I mean, that's the whole reason you get fucking sober, you know, but it's like, you wonder if that other person it, like that voice still remains because that project was conceived for so long. So it's not quite the, um, Oh, what's his, what's the English actor who plays the one brother in Hill house, his oh, storyline uh, from Uzzle man. Um, yeah. 
Um, Oliver. Yeah. Robert Oliver? No, that's not Oliver right. something. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it's it's not like his story to where like you're just watching a guy who is just a pure addict from more or less like childhood. Like they almost hint at like he was always gonna he was always the cute kid who just kind of went the wrong way, you yeah. know, ever since that horrible event. Again, that it, because of something that happened in his family is passed down, much like the shining, uh, and that he has to deal with and he more or less self medicates with with heroin, you know? Um, but it's, it's real interesting to watch, uh, Dr. Sleep and the, uh, sobriety aspects of that, because that movie, much like how, uh, Oculus feels like a dry run for, uh, haunting a Hill house. Like, Dr. Sleep almost feels like a dry run for, for Midnight Mass because you're, again, dealing with a lot of the same themes. You have uh, a main character who's looking to get sober and, and grappling with his own you know, horrible mistakes of his past. Um, you have vampires. Obviously, they're very different. And yeah. Like the vampires in Midnight Mass are much more the traditional Salem's lot. You have a, a master and a keeper or... Um, kind of like Barlow Straker and, uh, and Barlow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, um, you also have, uh, the structure of Dr. Sleep is like damn near identical. Cause it's even right down to having the coda is the seventh chapter of Dr. Sleep. And there are seven chapters at midnight mass and like you watch it and it's all, it's, it, it's, it's very much the same trajectory a lot of the time like you can see he's working out the kinks like this story much like haunting of hill house was in the back of his head whether he knew it or not um while he was making uh, dr sleep which the other thing i do want to comment on too is that what's most interesting about his stephen king adaptations is that and i think one of the the, the big things that uh, kind of highlights his prowess as a storyteller just period is the fact that those books suck like, Dr. Sleep is bad. I like that book, but... Gerald... No, come on, Martin. That book is terrible. But, like... Okay. Dr. Sleep is bad as a book. Like, it's... You You might like it, but let's, let's be honest. You're the outlier, even among Stephen King fans. Like, that one is pretty universally agreed upon by even... Yeah, okay. Mm, I'll, I'll roll with it for now. Yeah. That a lot of people don't like it. We'll put it that way. Gerald's game is also viewed by many as being like lesser King, not only lesser King, but like much like Dr. Sleep wrongheaded in even it's like conception because like Dr. Sleep, like you don't, we don't need a sequel to the shining. Like even like Steve, I get it, but just leave that fucking shit alone. Like it's fine. The same way with like Gerald's game. I'm not going to lie. My main problem with that, even when I was a kid, because I remember when Gerald's game came out and I was like part of like my mom had signed me up for like the Stephen King, like book of the month club. I had like a huge collection of like a bunch of first editions. I read everything. And even back then that was marketed as like the risque adult Stephen King novel. It's like, Ooh, Stephen King fucks. And dude, I'm not going to lie. I don't want Stephen King to fuck. No. Like, I'm I'm fine without him fucking because every time any kind of fucking occurs in Stephen King novels, it's really awkward. 
to bring up it again, oh. probably the worst offender. But like, I'm sorry. I don't want Stephen King to fuck. And even like Gerald's game, like as a kid, I would r- look at that and like, there was that lizard bla- brain part of you that was like, Ooh, Ooh, boobies, even if they're like just written about in words, I can imagine them or whatever. And it's naughty. But then there was the other side of me that was like, but I don't want that. Like, I just want like vampires and werewolves and scary shit. And like, that's what you're good at, man. Like, I don't want you to talk about boners or, you know, abuse and husbands and wives. Like I'm good. Like we can chill on that. And even as like, I remember it took me a long time to actually come around and finally read it. I don't think it was, I actually read it until I was in like my late teens or early twenties. And that book's not very good. It's okay. But it's very much a minor like work that he was just getting out of his system, you know, and probably was fulfilling some part of like a double day contract by delivering it, you know? You know, it's in something you mentioned earlier about, about Flanagan when he was writing uh midnight mass as a film and, you know, gets to page like one forty five or one fifty. He's like, Oh shit. I'm like, I'm still on episode one. If you know, or yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in I'm middle of I'm not the, even the midpoint yet. Like the said. point he, I I'm pretty sure the midpoint that he describes or the, the point that where he gets to 150 is the meeting after he, um, gets the little girl in the wheelchair to walk again. Okay. And it's more or less like, we still have like, what's that in episode three, I believe. You still have four and a half hours left after that. Yeah, and and there's there are so many similarities between Flanagan as a as a writer too, um, and this is a creator and Stephen King, and, and one of them is they are both um, very verbose. You know, they they like to they they like to write. Now, I would say Flanagan, especially something like Midnight Mass, is much more more tuned and and but he has when he has an idea. It's very a lot of times that he needs like a giant canvas to do that. Sure, you know, and you know, even again, like I don't like the theatrical cut of Doctor Sleep, and I until oh, I you want, don't like the theatrical cut? I do not. No. I actually quite like I like quite like both cuts, but I do think the director's is like a massive improvement. Well, it allows we've we've talked a couple times off, obviously not on the recording here, but we've you know talked about like there's a very specific kind of. Uh, pacing to Flanagan stories, especially right. when it comes to his stuff. And I, I had, I watched Dr. Sleep this week, just considering it more like a mini series, like it, and not sure. wanting to have the feeling of a feature film, which it doesn't, it feels, I mean, again, that has chapter breaks and um, kind of put into the film. And it's interesting because you and I talked about this last night at dinner and that King you know, he overwrites. He's known for yeah. overwriting, especially now. I mean, like, he definitely needs an editor more than ever. Um, but it allows him to kind of, like, get down to the good shit. Like, we were talking, and he's just, like, he's all, he'll just write and write and write, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this is great. But Flanagan, it's all good shit. You know what I mean? Like, he, like, you watch, like, Midnight Mass, and there's really not a lot of false, there's pretty much no real false notes in it. Um, or, or, yeah, I would or, go or, with none. Yeah. Or, or extraneous things that are kind of tacked on be, to give it a, a TV show feel. Um, and then we talked too about the pacing of it. Well, and let's, it's let's, not even episodic. It feels like it's one continuous. It just, it just cuts. Well, that's where well, I was going with the dry run too, between Dr. Sleep and midnight mass is that like the way that that movie kind of like what you're saying, how it even flows is like, yeah, it has chapters, but it's just like, 
it's like reading a book is that you put down that book and the chapter ends and you pick it up and it just picks right up on whatever happens next in the story. There's no, it's, it's the thing you keep calling Hill house a show. And I actually wrestle with what to even term Flanagan's Netflix output because I think Bly Manor is, is the asterisk in this um, because he only more or less produced it, directed the pilot and had some writing done on it. But I mean, other than that, like other directors were, were, were coming in and shooting. Cause I think like XL Carolyn shot one and somebody else. Uh, it, I want to say Anna Lily Amapur, but I think that's, that's Castle Rock. She, she shot she one. Did Castle Rock. Yeah, yeah, she did Castle Rock, but there was another director whose name even popped up and I went, Oh, okay. I know who that is, you know, but at the same time, I think that that show suffers because of that, because as soon as the first episode is done, it doesn't feel like Flanagan anymore. It actually feels like TV to me. Like they're delivering a, a, a still a self-contained story like Hill House was, but it feels much more episodic because I could tell the stylistic differences between each one where Hill House and Midnight Mass are like, straight up auteurist works where he wrote them all, uh, directed them all uh, in Midnight Mass. I think he edited that one too because he edited Dr. Sleep. He edited Oculus. He edits a lot of his movies himself. Like he's very Soderberghian in a way to where like he's just such a master of the different elements of the, the craft itself that like, he can deliver that to you. Like he can do it all. And because of that, each movie feels a very particular way. So like when I watch like Hill house is much more episodic because of the structure uh, of each episode, especially early on to where like you literally get a, a new episode with each kid yeah. and watch their individual story and how the uh, haunting and, and the horrible stuff that happened with their parents kind of reverberated back and, and more or less molded them into the adult, the adults that they are where like midnight mass is what you were talking about with Dr. Sleep is that it's just like, I, I think that it's the first like straight up bullet he's made from like to where it just fucking goes because I watched, I never binge this shit. Like I, with, with Hill house, I literally would watch one a day because like I, a wanted to savor it and be like, it was such an emotional, like wrecking ball that I was like, okay, I need a second. I'll come back to you tomorrow. But like with fucking midnight mass, the, the one would end and I would literally be like, all right, let's go. Well, what are we doing next? Like what's happening here? Where, where, where the, what's this angel? What are these vampires? What is, how are these, how's this little girl walking out of a wheelchair again? Like w- what's going on? Like he made his first straight up just bullet to where like, and by, I think one of, one of the other big things that works in its favor and why it might actually be the apex of his career thus far it's the most satisfying like ending wise in terms of its like conclusion, because I have like my, our, my good buddy, uh, James Shapiro. One of the places that we differ on Hill house is that we both really, really like it. I love the ending of Hill house, but I understand his complaint with it is that he goes, 
I don't think it's very satisfying on any kind of horror level. As he goes, it's very satisfying from like an emotional level. But once you actually find out the meaning behind like the red room and like what it does for all the kids and everything is like all of a sudden it's not scary anymore. It's literally just about confronting your own demons and, and dealing with it and finding a way to be happy and move on past these, these, these traumatic things that happen in your life. We're like midnight mass makes fucking Hill house look downright whimsical by the end because the midnight mass is basically like vampires Island apocalypse. Everybody's dead. And you're like, Oh my God. It's the fucking thing. Yeah. Like it it goes, we got to burn it down so it can't, when you it's know. it's also the purest work of horror that he's done, at least in long form, I think maybe just period, because he just leans into like the pure pulp of of this story. Like he makes his Salem slot. It feels like an early Stephen King book. It's just the Mike Flanagan version of that. Yeah, and the, and the Salem's Lot thing is is completely apt. And one of the things I love about Salem's Lot as a book, and I like the Toby Hooper. Um, miniseries as well is it's as much about the town as it is about like the horror that comes upon the town. Right. So you really like one of the things that King has is really great at when he's, when he's firing on all cylinders is like he can create a town of like of realistic characters with history and like everyone there's intersecting, like people have dated. He, he has a very like tableau kind of thing. And I feel like Flanagan has done, if he's doing it with, you know, uh, Haunting Hill House, um, this feels much more like a Salem's lot of, you know, we get, especially the first couple episodes, like he takes his fucking time, like introducing us to this town too. And not just like, this isn't just like Cape Cod. This is this town with a very specific background. Crockett uh, Island. Yeah, Crockett Island where... There well, was it's a, there based was a, after a, a place that he grew up in and worked ad for a very long time even i believe on fishing boats and stuff in off the coast again he goes into it in the the bloody disgusting article but i believe it's off the coast of either virginia or carolina Mm. like it's based on a real place right but it's it's interesting though that the specificity he gives it of um with with the oil spill for instance like this is a town dying because well and that's one of the other things i want to get into later too is that this is the first Flanagan movie, I think that actually has a political point of view too. Yeah. And and I'm I'm interested to talk about that as well. But you know, what we talked about earlier is, you know, um, what I was thinking about earlier is it's not just, you know, any town USA where evil comes upon it. Right. right? It is a town already with, with the trauma there, you know, and, and you have characters who are coming back and let's face it, it's a fucking island. How many towns are an island? Right. It's, you know, it's, a t- it's an island. It's, um, but to give a little you know, backstory for listeners, um, after this oil spill, a lot of people were convinced to basically take a payout from the oil company and leave. Right. So the people who decided to stay, it's a fucking ghost town. I mean, there's probably like, what, like 100 citizens or 60 to 100 citizens tops. So everyone really does know. Well, they say it's 127. Okay, there you That's go. That's like the exact number. Okay, so very, but I mean, a very small community. Where, right. And and most of them go to the same church. There's one church on the island. Um, I graduated from a high school that from eighth grade up through uh, senior, so that's 12th, I suppose, 
we had 187 kids. So we only, there was only 60 more than Crockett Island. Yes. And that, I mean, you knew everybody at, at my high school. So like, I imagine if, if it's 127 and you're on a fucking island, we're like, also it has two fairies, the bell and the breeze that only go once, like each fairy only goes once a day to the mainland and then comes back. So like they're like, they're fucking there. Like they can't leave They're in it. It really sets up from the beginning again. Like that's very pulpy. Like right. that's a very pulpy thing of like, Oh, whoa. Like that you really, the almost feeling of, of isolation is, is, is put down from the beginning, you right. know? And we talked the other, yesterday about the slow rollout of the horror, especially at the beginning of, you know, we were talking about, you know, the onset of the monster and the, the signs of the monster's presence before the monster is seen or, or felt by us or by the, by the uh, characters in the film. And you have these dead cats that, you know, wash up, on the beach and it's just like what like what also can we talk about the fucking cats for like one second is that there's a mini island on the yes. island that's more or less like trash island yeah but and, where, and, like, and where kids go to get drunk kids and, go to get drunk what do they call it the uppers or the it's the uppers which is funny it sounds like a king thing from it what's right the, what's the the, the bottom the barons the barons oh, yeah yeah um, but yeah, the, the uppers is like this little mini island that's literally overrun by feral cats that came from the mainland. And all they do is they, they, they even fuck. make the comment that they just fuck and they hide in the bushes. And like, it's one of these awesome, like weird visual things that he does when the kids go up there and, uh, they're walking through and you just see all these glowing, cat eyes just moving around them in the background in the bushes and shit. And I'm watching it and I'm like, dude, he's had that in his head forever of just being like, wouldn't it be cool if you were just walking on this weird little Island and there were just cats everywhere. You can't see them, but you know, they're there cause you see their glowing weird eyes, you know? Well, and then you have the moment of the reveal. The first time you see the, the monster, the monster is it's, it's high up. It's the same glowing eyes, but it's not on the ground. Oh my God. It's at like six foot tall. Dude, that shit fucked me up too. Like it also has the very Salem's Lottie, uh, moment where the face comes to the window. Oh yes. A hundred percent. And that's straight up just Barlow. Yeah. The, oh, the, the monster like coming there and you're like, that was the moment where I went, Oh, you're, like you're not even hiding it. Like you're doing your version of this. And it's honestly, this is the, also the first movie of his that has scared me to where like, I actually have stayed up at night because like Salem's lot fucked me up when I was a kid, when I first rented that on VHS, Jesus. like I could not sleep, especially the window. Yeah. That, I was just Jesus about to say Christ. that where he's scratching at the window Maybe and they shot floating it up. Yeah. And all the fogs around him, dude, that scene terrified me as a kid but honestly the nosferatu creature design on the the main vampire the master in um salem's lot i think is one of the the most brilliant makeup designs in like horror movie history because that shit was like burned into my brain and the angel the main uh, monster from midnight mass um when they first reveal it i looked at i was like Oh, like it even fucking looks like the master from Salem's Lot. Like it's horrifying looking. Um, but yeah, it, it, like he hides those glowing eyes and you only notice it because it's standing and clearly taller. But yeah, and he, he, he builds it out. He, 
I, I have, I'm on my third rewatch <laughs> already um, because Carrie hasn't seen it yet. And Carrie made the comment to where I had to bite my tongue because I, I do like this so much that like, she was like, this is kind of boring. Like for the first two hours, like, and it was like halfway through episode two. And I just kind of looked at her. I was like, just give it a second. Like literally once we're done with this episode, like shit gets real. And that's the other thing with, with this is I think is one of the most satisfying pieces of storytelling that he he's done thus far is that when this pops off into full like horror mode, it's downright it, like the thing comparison that you just made is, is pretty apt because it's apocalyptic. It's like they literally realize that they're the last people standing between like more or less like human annihilation, this 127 like person like fisherman's village that's dying in the first place. Um, but yeah, he slow builds it. And then you get to episode three, uh, after they introduce, uh, is it Hamish link later? Is that how you say it? I think so. Yeah. Oh, actually I think it's Hamish. Hamish. Is think, it, Hamish sounds more yeah. right. Um, Hamish link later shows up as this new priest, uh, out of nowhere because the old priest who's been there for years and is eight in his eighties and, is suffering from dementia. He went on a, a pilgrimage to, to the Holy land yeah. that, that the Island even paid for him to go, even though they all kind of knew it was a bad idea. They're like, this guy doesn't even know where he is now. Like send him to Jerusalem. And what happened, they kind of joked about happening happened is that he had a moment and wandered off into the desert. And now this new priest is back. Uh, and I, I really want to talk about his performance a lot because like, he comes back and he's so captivating right away um, in terms of like his first uh, sermon or I guess they're homilies that they, they call them in the Catholic church um, that he delivers is like really incredible. And when he goes through like he does the whole like fisherman's village uh, homily to them too about like resurrecting the town and everything. And the whole time you're watching it, you're like, he, he like Flanagan's inserting like weird little hints, like the altar boys noticing that the, um, chalices for, for communion are already basically, uh, filled with, yeah. with fresh wine and nobody knows where the wine and that, came and that's from. Usually their job. Yeah, and that's usually their job. Um, also, uh, you know, he, makes a a girl in a wheelchair who was injured in a quote unquote hunting accident, uh, rise up and walk. And nobody knows how that could have possibly happened. Her, her spine more or less like magically heals. And then you get to episode three and like, it's one of the things that I really love about it is that instead of just letting the mystery play out for like seven hours, like Flanagan is just like, no, I'm going to tell you what's happening. And then we're going to move into where that's the story goes from there, which is haywire. It, I, I love that. And it, it actually gets back to what we were talking about with um, the idea of TV, a show versus like a Flanagan limited series or, or film, if you want to talk about it. Right. Right. Cause you think about um, most shows, whether they're going to be, you know, one season or numerous seasons, they're trying, if they have a good um, mystery, they're going to keep it as long as they can. Like you think about the entire show of Lost was a lot of misdirection and they would never answer one question. Or Twin Peaks. Or Twin Peaks, right? Without giving you more and more things to wonder about. Even when they answer a question. With Flanagan and with this film, you're saying 
he does these like these jumps forward. He's like, well, fuck, I'm going to tell you right now. And it's the same thing that happens with Riley where you might think Riley's going to slowly build up. He goes, man, Father Paul lied to me. Right. And you think it might be like, that could be two episodes of him putting it all together. And like, it's like, no, he just goes right back. And there's the fucking vampire right there. And he fucking bites him. Yeah. And that's the end of the episode. You're like, oh, Riley's dying. And that's it. He just cuts the black. You're like, well, and it's after Riley full on confronts him and goes, hey, so look, like I, I can accept like these. I can't necessarily accept miracles, but I can accept that miraculous things happen inside the realm of science. It's where like the philosophical side of the, the story really kind of shines through. Also, the, the, the cynical like uh, approach to AA that he's going through because uh, Father Paul you know, even starts a chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous on uh, Crockett Island to save Riley a trip, more or less, to the mainland. And, and they're the only two in there. So it's it's their meeting until um, Joe. Robert Longst- Longstreet's character, Joe, another one of the regular, and quite frankly, possibly my favorite of the Flanagan players. It's either him or, or Henry Thomas, I think, or both. His stuff in Hill House... Like that monologue that he gives in the basement, yeah, murdered me. It's I fucking was like, brilliant. I was like uncontrollably crying. Well, and he's one of the best weird, like little supporting parts of Doctor Sleep too. Is one of the members yeah. of the True Knot. Bury the chunk. Yeah, he's really, really. Oh, is that the bury actually, the chunk? I don't think they call him the chunk in the movie. They do. Oh, do they at one point? Because um, Abra is going through like. She's going through one of her visions. She's oh, like, oh no, she, yeah, she's you're like, right. Barry the Chunk was there because in the book they go and everyone has their moniker, right? So it's like Snake Bite Annie, Rose the Hat, um, right? But it's really interesting. Um, the grandfather who's actually played by the giant from Twin Peaks, from Twin Peaks, um, who, who died, I, re- I believe, immediately after the production of that wrapped. No, I just saw him a year and a half ago. Oh, I thought he died. I, I, he, he might have, but I saw his name's Carol Spears or something. Right. Yeah, I saw him at um, uh, at Frightmare. Like Frightmare. Yeah, yeah. and I, he cut me in line to get a sandwich at Starbucks. <laughs> and I'm like, you can cut me. That's Look, fine. you fucking big ogre. <laughs> I'm hungry too. <laughs> it was like Elijah Wood has cut me four times at Fantastic Fest for beer. Like I've counted now. I'm just like, oh, Elijah Wood. What cut if you me just again. slapped Elijah Wood in the back of his head? You're so, like, look fucking Frodo. I need a beer too. Get the fuck out of my way. And the, the, the proportions are correct. Cause I am Gandalf size to him. Like for real, I'm six, seven. So you're kind of like one of the tree people to him. Yeah. Like I mean, he, I'm an ents and you, he, yeah, you are a big motherfucker and he is not a big man. No, he's, 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 he's a little one, but, um, <laughs> he's just a little guy. He's a, he's a little guy. Um, but what I also really, I pretty much love everything at midnight mass and, I grew up in a, a, a faith-based family. Like my dad is a um, was an ordained Baptist minister. Right, left the church, became Greek Orthodox. He's been a religion professor for it was like over forty years. Um, he's he's written on religion, and so it was always in my family. My mom was was I was raised Lutheran um, in the Lutheran mm-hmm. church with her. I was Episcopalian. There you go. We're dancing in the same same idea. We're, yeah, no. we're, we're hanging out in the same place. And watching this really made me kind of think back on just like my time in the church and, um, and what a charismatic religious leader can do for you. Um, and, sure. and, and not, and it's, it's, it's interesting that you kind of mentioned how he also, father Paul slowly rolls out his kind of, um, 
uh, ethos, his ethos, but also like his bigger plan. Um, and, and earlier, like he's just doing a lot of good stuff for good sake. I mean, like the, him keeping Riley on the thing, I honestly believe is just like out of the goodness of his heart. He goes, I'm going to help this guy. That felt like the real father Paul before, because father Paul thinks he's doing good. I think that's what I love so much about the horror is of this is, He's not saying, oh, I've brought this monster to destroy this town. It really is a person who believes that not only is he doing good, but he's going to save this town. Like, he's going to resurrect the town. Yes and no. I do believe that it is out of, out of goodness. I just wouldn't go as far as to say it's altruistic because the goodness, his motives become warped in the back half with the... Uh, storyline um, with the the doctor who was the I can't remember the actress's name, but Anna she F. was Gish. yeah she was the nanny in um, uh, Hill House as yeah. well. Uh, but her mother, who is played by um, Alex Esso, Alex Esso, who is obviously a much younger actress, and she's in this this very elaborate, um, frankly not great, um, not quite Jay Edgar esque. Uh, old ma- old person makeup, but yeah, there are times where you're looking at it going mm. Henry Thomas's too with the salt and pepper mustache, and there's a little they they go a little hard on the cheeks and stuff. But anyway, 4K doesn't know again, favors too on on, yeah. on Netflix. You're like oh, I can see all that. Shit. Yeah, again, it's with Flanagan. There is an artifice to it, so I'm fine with it because I'm like you're do you're, like I know that this is going to be a thing that you address later. Like you're not just doing it to do it. And like, if you are such a, an expert crafts person that you're definitely watching these dailies and being like, well, that's clearly makeup, you know? Anyway, there's the, the storyline that develops because he's going to, uh, her home, the doctor's home where her mother has dementia and can barely like kind of move around and more or less the doctor's just waiting it out for her mom to die so that she can leave Crockett Island. But her mom just doesn't know anything else. And she's not going to take her into the big bad world. Like she's going to bury her where at the place that she's always known and love her home. But he comes to her house to administer mass at home since she is more or less an invalid. And begins giving her the communion that produces the miracles inside of the church. And we find out uh, that his motives for bringing the blood and the vampirism back from the Holy Land is because he's in love with this woman and because they fathered a child years ago and more or less had an unrequited love after that, where she stayed married, she couldn't leave, uh, you know, her husband because of the, the trauma that when she references the war, I'm just assuming it's world war two because they're both supposed to be so old. Um, but like that she goes, you know, after the war, I couldn't leave him. I couldn't do that to the child. And you, I also would never ask because he's like specifically says to her. And it's one of the, the scenes that really gets me like choked up is that he looks at her at one point and goes, you know, I would have, there are so many times where I looked at you from a distance, like sitting out in the, the pews and I would have, I would have stepped down and taken this off for a minute if it meant that we could have run away together, you know? And like, you find out that he just wants more than anything to cure this one 
woman that so that he can have because he he keeps in his sermons talking about second chances and resurrection and the idea of how the second chance as a person which again to me also ties back to the the idea of alcoholism and becoming sober and everything is that like the idea of having a second chance as a human being despite all of your your mistakes and your sins and and the things that you've done in the past like that's the most miraculous thing that a human being can have at all and like that idea becomes almost when you rewatch it that becomes the driving engine that you have in the back of your head that you didn't have the whole time right. but you realize rewatching it that he's layered in all these things like when they have the crockpot social the easter social uh, and the doctor brings that date and he's there, staring at her and he's just staring at her. Well, they chalk it up. They make the joke. It's because they're gay. It's like, Oh, we, even when you were a kid and you knew, like, didn't it creep you out when like, cause she, Cause she says the, the other, that he was always looking at the old priest. The old priest was always looking at them, uh, at her specifically, uh, because, um, it's his daughter, but she always noticed it. And they make the joke. It's like, I always thought even as like a little girl, like he was staring at me because he's a holy man and he knew I was gay. And it was just like condemning me when really he's just like, he, he wants more than anything to be hold her. A <laughs> yeah. Dad to her own, his own kid. And like, there's something just so, uh, heartbreakingly tragic about about that storyline that also to me really muddles the morality of of the priest and it's it's one of the things that really makes him such a fascinating character and Hamish Linklater is so good it like it's 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 hard to overstate how fucking good he is in this that for I want to bring it back to the thing we were talking about earlier is that first meeting after he performs the miracle and they have the argument and Riley's going into it. He goes, I can accept science. I can accept that maybe she healed. Maybe it was a misdiagnosis. Maybe it is a miracle of science that we can explain. But the one thing that we can't explain is how did you know? How did you know it was going to happen? You had to have known because he, in the scene, he more or less beckons her. Um, and uh, like to to come up and take the wafer from him while the whole church is basically reacting and being like, this guy's being incredibly cruel. Like this is a horrible right, thing to right. do to a, a little girl in a wheelchair. And she finally gets up and she walks and she takes the the the, the wafer the wafer from him. And it's such a, a an incredible moment because the episode literally ends with body of Christ. Amen. And it's just over and you're like, what the fuck? Like that was the moment where I was just like, well, I guess I'm not sleeping tonight because I'm just going to roll through this whole thing. But Riley says to him, you knew because it, because if you You didn't, if you asked her to get up and she didn't get up, what the fuck, what happens then? Like, how does the, how does the town react? Like you would have been run out of here. Like they would have drowned you in the ocean that surrounds, you know, Crockett Island. And he just kind of offers up this half hearted, like, I just felt it, you know, like God was moving me more or less. And like, it's the moment, like you said, it's the, that third episode both solves a mystery while then introducing, cause that's the first time you really get, the, the, the first real look at the monster in full light because it enters, it attacks Riley 
and more or less kill like kills him, turns him into a vampire. But like, um, it's real interesting because it highlights this very strange clash that they have and the cynicism that you talked about growing up or, or, or that, that, you know, he injects into this is that like, you know, they have that discussion about the different notions of, of AA and yeah. recovery and how a big part of um, AA is surrendering yourself to a higher power, yeah. giving yourself over to God and, and allowing him to guide you and really kind of devoting yourself. It becomes your purpose, you know, because Riley's big thing when he comes home is that he keeps uh, saying over and over again, I, I just exist now. Like I don't have a right. purpose here. I don't, cause he was a hedge fund dude. He was a part of a startup and then he was a drunk and killed someone in a car wreck and went to jail. And that's, he's basically out on parole in Crockett Island and he's haunted in very hill by a very hill healthy ghost of, of the girl yeah. from the, the, the accident. And Bly Manor with the glasses. Or, yeah. With the, or, exactly. Yeah. The, the twinkling red and blue cop lights coming off the glass that's embedded in her face and stuff. And like, which is a really nice, again, Flanagan-y visual touch. Um, but Riley goes, I can't remember what he calls it, it, it exactly. It's like addictive voice recognition, AVR. It, it's, it's, it's the one where it's more, it's the sense of self, right? Like you have the power. Well, it's, it, it's, it's, it's rec- like, cause even uh, Father Paul like says to him, so in in yours because Riley lays it out to where it's it's the scientific approach versus the 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 uh, religious approach to where it's like you recognize the addictive voice inside of yourself and then yes you become the the higher the higher power because that's what Father Paul says to him he, he has one of the better lines of the whole work is that he goes you become the higher power huh and he's like yeah and Riley goes yeah he goes how's that working out for you <laughs> like you know and it's but it's it's. Hamish Linklater's performance is so fucking good because he sells you on this guy who has, who is presenting himself, like you said, as this altruistic leader, but has all of this like stuff that's clashing inside of him that he knows is more or less wrong. And then in episode three, we find out that it's the same priest. Yeah. Like he literally like Flanagan, does something that's incredible is that he answers all the mysteries. It's the anti-lost. He, yeah. he answers all the mystery. We know exactly what we're watching now. This is the conflict. But then he also sets up the idea that, that father Paul has a greater plan because he says, I need to prepare them for the miracles to come. I must say, cause he's in the confessional booth. And again, one of my favorite like visual touches in this is that they wood have cuts. the wood, uh, mosaics of father Paul's, uh, journey to the Holy land. And then we actually see it, see him encounter the quote unquote angel in the cave in the middle of the sandstorm that bites him, turns him into a vampire. And then he carts the angel back to Crockett Island and more or less gets his quote unquote second chance, but he has to feed like he has to be a vampire. And then it becomes about resurrecting this town quite literally, but making them more than human. They become monsters. And man, it's just from that point forward, it's, I think episode four is the only one 
that stumbles slightly because we get into uh, it, it, it. There's a pacing thing, and it's the usual Flanagan-y, like hot cold. It's like here's here's a big thing, and then here we're gonna have a cooling off period, and then this one it it works kind of better because like episode four is the one to where he goes, he and Katie Siegel have the whole conversation about what do you think happens when you die? What do you uh, like? What do you think happens when you die? How do you deal with faith? Why are you so connected? Because she's, she was his love like growing up. That's kind of the other big storyline in this is that he returns to town. She also returned to town after basically having some wild child years. She's pregnant now. And she more or less says that her baby quote unquote, saved her, saved her life. Like basically made her want to move back. And and again, she has a purpose now it's this kid. Um, and they're bonding together, uh, through, you know, both the past and like the fact that they're both these two kind of broken people also looking for like a second chance. And that episode is the first one to where you're like, okay, I just got all this shit. And now, like he's pumped the brakes on you and he kind of pumps the brakes maybe a little too hard, but then from five on, cause five's the one where he dies at the end, right? In the rowboat. Yes. Yeah. I think it's the end of that. Episode. Dude. And that's the, like he fucking kills the main character and there's almost three hours left in the movie. Like when Riley dies, who also we need to say Matt Saracen, um, QB one from Friday night lights. He's real fucking good in this. Like, I love him. Yeah, he's very, his eyes are so soulful. Like, he, um, I, I love, I love that scene, um, in the boat because we talked about it before, um, I think a couple, a couple days ago, how fucking disturbing, but also amazing that scene is because he's, it really like, and again, true Flanagan fashion, like he's really good at kind of the bait and switch mm-hmm. and, and you have the scene of, you know, we know he's a vampire. She doesn't know he's a vampire. So the belief is like, well, he's going to fucking kill her. You know, like that's, that, that's what I thought at that moment. Mm-hmm. And, and what's cool about the show and not just that scene, but later on is it really gets into, even when you're a monster, quote unquote, you have a choice. And it happens right. with his parents later on too, where people will use their monsterism to, as an excuse to like, or they're to do horrible things. And he's sitting there and he's already made the decision. He's going to fucking die. But I love that. But he's going to die in the name of giving her the, the, the information that she needs and the proof that like he essentially becomes a martyr. He becomes yeah. the proof that she needs that this is happening around them. And she becomes the hero. Well, of, of of the story. He, well, he yeah he passes the he passes the protagonist torch to her like right. from a narrative perspective. What's cool too about it is they they keep bringing up the the story of Thomas and Jesus and that you know Jesus goes to doubting Thomas and says Thomas says I don't believe it's you and Jesus says well put your hand in my side and he right. basically walks him through like and this idea of of faith versus of versus doubt right and right and what's cool is he gets to it's a very similar moment for he gets to basically be like, well, let's skip all that in true flatting and fashion and jump ahead and be like, I'm going to give you all the proof you need. Like, like you said, I'm like, I'm going to burn in this sunset. And it also, well, it's the, it, to me, that moment is this 
the midnight mass equivalent of the the bent neck lady moment where we find out that Nell actually is the bent neck lady. Because I remember when that happened for the first time, I had a very similar reaction of like, that's a fucking genius and be like, Oh my God. (laughs) It's really, it's really sad and and really scary. Um, but like when her screams echo into like the, over the credits after he just explodes into a ball of fire, it's like Flanagan again. He's just, he knows exactly when to linger and let you feel something. And like, you did that shit is like a just a needle to your heart the entire time. It really, really hurts to watch. Um, but it's also work. You know, we kind of brought up how he works with the same people over and over again. It's worth noting that the cinematographer I brought up earlier is a uh, Michael Filmanaji, I believe is the is how do you say his name? But he's been shooting everything for him since pretty much Oculus. He shot all of Hill House for him. He shot Dr. Sleep. He shot... I don't think he shot Hush is the one that he didn't shoot. Um, doesn't look the same, so... Yeah, it doesn't look the same either, so you kind of get it, but he shot Ouija, um, you know. But he... The composition on that fucking water sequence where he bursts into flames and it's like reflecting off of that serene surface and the clouds are behind it just kind of the clouds just kind of part and he explodes. It's such an amazing image to, to create. Like he really shoots the hell out of this whole series. He does. It's gorgeous. Um, one thing I don't want us to forget about, um, something we talked about last night was again, another King reference is his pulling on, on revival and thinking about that as it, applies to yeah. the story of Pesciov. Which I have not read yet, and you say is it's, possibly King's best late period book. It is. Um, so basically the, the the idea behind, there's a, you'll notice a lot of, um, of similar stuff. Because that's uh, also about a preacher so, who has like a revival circuit that he's working, and it gets bigger and bigger. And So a little bit like that. So basically he was, it starts out, um, in in the past, so it's two eras, a very uh, charismatic, very sweet, very loving uh, pastor. And our main character is a kid at that point, and he really likes the pastor. He thinks he's like super cool. Um, but the pastor is really obsessed with um, with galvanism, with electricity. And so, yeah, he just, he loves, I think he kind of like sees God in like science. It's like this whole thing. But he also is just obsessed with like, what electricity can do. Yeah. And so like, he, he, I think he even does like some kind of like science experiments for like the kids. Like, Oh, look at this. Like mm-hmm. almost like Tesla coil kind of shit. And then his whole family dies in a horrible car accident. The, the pastor, like his wife and his kids like die just horrifically. And he completely loses his faith. And he, they call it like the, like the Sunday or something. And he goes in and, preaches like when he's in mourning and just says there is no fucking God. It's this awesome scene and it affects the kid too. Like for his whole life, the kid grows up. So he goes like full Mel Gibson and signs, right? Yeah. He's just, there, there is no God. And it's interesting because they have, obviously you had this connection from childhood between pastor and kid, which we have also with Riley and father Paul, right? You know, that they, um, they, they were close when he was younger. And then 
now you have this young version of him kind of of Father Paul talking to him again and helping him through or trying to help him through a harder part of his life. Um, but you said also kind of using him. But, you know, revival has it's a similar thing where this guy thinks he's doing good, like because he uses his galvanism stuff to basically open up a portal to a Lovecraft world. Um, oh, wow. It's fucking awesome because he he wants to see his family again and, and prove that they're it, find the afterlife, basically, through science. And it has the I'm not going to ruin the ending for listeners because it is like the best Stephen King ending of all time. Um, I'll ruin it for you, which after. is which is rare. Yeah, well, yeah, because you know, but it, it just like it has this last line, and I'll never forget it. It's like, poof, and it just it's like you got to put the book down for a second and be like, shit, like. But it's it's interesting to see that when we were talking about Flanagan kind of working in a lot of different King stuff, um, and he was attached to make revival at one point. That was in the in the cards. Flanagan was Flanagan was there was a point I didn't know that for a while it was Josh Boone who you know did the stand you wonder if maybe he was trying to do revival because he just couldn't get uh, Midnight Mass made for the last decade so you wonder if that adaptation would have just been mid like basically Midnight Mass like his version of it you know yep and then you maybe if he made that movie we would have never gotten this exactly which I'm I much preferred this well this is a better story than revival <laughs> So well, like, it's, it's not only that, the, the other comparison that I have for it, just in terms of like the gestation period and how it feels when you watch it, it feels like a thing that's just been with this guy for so long as a story that he had to tell. It feels a lot like that first season of True Detective where it just comes out fully formed. Yeah, it's there. Mm -hmm. You could tell Nick Pizzolatto for all of his fucking insanity, uh, you know, that that first work was great because he had worked on it for so long. It's and it the first been album. In his head. Yeah, he exactly. That's the best way to put it is that it's the first album, but here uh, Flanagan gets to basically have his crazy, like this is almost like a greatest hits record because it's all the things that he's really, really good at. And he gets to bring not only his behind the scenes collaborators with him with like the Newton brothers and his cinematographer and like, but now he has the players who are all basically filling the roles that have been in his head for so long that he already has this amazing rapport with, with like Henry Thomas, Annabeth Gish, um, all these people, plus like these established actors like Zach Guilford, who's been not only in like Friday night lights, but he was in like Larry Fessenden's that one that was like the, 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 Almost like Larry one? Fessenden's, uh, like the thing version where it's like him and Ron Perlman. They're like in oh. Antarctica. Is it Wendigo? I think it's actually called. Mm. No, it's not his Wendigo. I'd have to look it up, but he's, I remember that with a big box in it. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's done a bunch of really weird, interesting stuff. Devils do. Yeah. yeah. But then he also gets, um, uh, the, uh, I believe he's English Indian actor. Uh, from Bly Manor, uh, Raul Coley, who gets to play the sheriff and like almost steals the entire movie. Like he's so fucking good in this. But my, my point being is that like, he's now he's done all this stuff. He's amassed this reputation. He obviously has this amazing 
rapport with these act, not just these actors, but actors in general. The one thing that, that separates Flanagan stuff from a lot of other genre stuff and why I think that he's one of the best, uh, if not the best working American horror filmmaker is that like, he's real good with actors and he has such a very specific writing style, which we can get into in a minute here because it's, it's one of the gripes about the show that I think is just completely misinformed or, or wrong headed is that like Flanagan is very writerly when he writes, especially with his monologues. But like, imagine being an actor and just getting that final monologue that Katie Siegel delivers as she's die, she's being drained by this monstrous vampire and like cutting its wings as it's happening. But she literally delivers this almost like seven minute monologue about how your body ascends into antimatter. And like, that's what, what happens when, when you die and you're like, Dude, as an actor, you were either like, yes, give me this now, or, oh my God, I'm terrified of this. What are you doing? Well, it's a good thing they're married. Yeah. You know, well, her, it, helps, but it's like, you know. if you take take hers away, like, uh, Raul Coley's uh, monologue about 9-11, because he's, uh, you know, a, a Middle Eastern man, a Muslim, the only uh, practicing Muslim on the island, while the rest of them are... are uh, Catholics going to St. Patrick's and like that becomes a, a very distinct source of conflict between him and the town, but he's literally moved to this town. He's, he's basically like the chief Brody of Crockett oh, he's Island. 100% Brody. Like he's just moved to this little fishing town. He doesn't even like water like, but he just wants to basically get away and have this quiet life. And after his wife died too, he's dealing with his own familial trauma and like trying to, you know, connect with his son and have him feel included in this community that frankly, I think Flanagan does a really good job of injecting the, the, I don't want to call it subtle, but like the, the, the possibly inadvertent and not even intentional racism that's thrown in with some of the things that, that people say to him with like, like Bev Keen's character who we'll get into in a minute is the most Kingy character in the, in the entire yeah. uh, work. Like she's just overtly racist. Like she says straight up shit to him that you're like, dude, that's fucked up. But then like, there's that one moment during that amazing one take on the beach when all the cats are, are, dead and they, they washed up from the uppers after the angel had basically fed on it. Um, and they're walking around and like the mayor even says something to him to the tune of like, you know, it'd be really cool if you showed up at St. Patrick's, like we get it. You're a Muslim. Like we, we're not asking you to like convert or practice, but like it could go a long way with the community, but he uses it, an expression that I've always found to be, the well-meaning white person's like racism where he goes, you know, and you got your faith and you know, you know, all due respect, like you, you, you have that. And it's almost like you wouldn't bring it up if it didn't fucking bother you. <laughs> like that's, that's your way of like bringing it up without bringing it up, you know? Yeah. But like he does this really, really great. He creates this tension between the sheriff and the rest of the town that, he gets to also expand upon on like a philosophical level with the ending, frankly, is because, you know, he's losing his kid more and more. And then by the very end, they're literally praying together on their prayer towels to, uh, 
Allah while the others are praying to God and the apocalypse is coming via the sun. Well, well yeah, because the kid has now been infected. He's a vampire and he's been shot numerous times. Uh, you want to sheriff- talk about one of the most heinous scenes in the whole fucking work is when the vampire kills his own son in front of him. Like that was the moment where I was like, damn, you're just going for it. Like your balls out. Like, I don't give a fuck about anything right now. You're going to, you're going to be in pain after you're done with midnight mass. What, uh, his son dies in front of him. Yeah. Cause remember he feeds on him in the church in front of him. No, he, no, he, no, he drinks the stuff. The kid drinks. It. Yeah. He, he drinks it and they, they, they like confront him cause he tries to shoot him and stuff, but he's like, they hold him to the floor while it's happening while they basically turn him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. His son was not bitten, but his son is. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But he, he has to scream. He knows it's basically the end of his son's life. Yeah. And there it's, it's rap, you know, the recurring, um, rat poison, which has been sprinkled and very well planted, um, throughout the entire, like there's a, he, uh, that he, whole Jim Jones suicide style sequence. Well, you really forget, like what I like about Flanagan too, is, you know, as, as, as long as the story is, is that he's, he's an excellent genre storyteller. Like there's just Chekhov's guns everywhere. But right. There's these planted things that in some stories are come across as like ham fisted, but it's like the way you, he built in, the rat poison to tie it to the Joe story of the killing of the dog. Right. It's this like one thing to kind of show Bev because Bev we, we know is poison the dog. She doesn't like the dog of the town drunk. Who's the, the character from the mist miss Carmody. I forget the name, but it's the Mar- Marsha Gay Harden character from the film. I believe it's miss Carmody, but I Bev Keen in midnight mass is like, she's so extreme that I think that Marsha Gay Harden's character from the, the mist would look at her and be like, you know, you need, you need to calm ch- down. You need to chill, bro. Like you're taking this too far. <laughs> no. And I agree. I was the, I thought the same thing watching. I said, Oh, this is just the mist again. It's, and what's really cool about the Bev Keen character too, is that's a, a moment in the show where you kind of realize what you're watching. Right. So, um, it's right after, uh, the priest has killed Joe and it's his first time killing a human and feeding on human. Oh my blood. God. When he drinks from the back of his fucking head. Yeah. And he's just like slurping it and, <laughs> and, and bed and he does not come to church the next morning, uh, to do mass. And, you know, she's doing her awkward, like, it's okay, everyone. And she's so horrible and goes to hit the, um, the rectory to find him. And she comes in and it's just like, what the fuck? And because there's a fucking dead body, There's a dead body. He's in the corner, covered blood all over his face. And it's a moment where it could go one of two ways of she's going to die because she finds the monster. And we're like, oh, cool. I already don't like her. And when she closes the door and says, all right, we can fix this. Right. And that is like a huge turning point in the show where you realize the, the he's not just infecting the town with the, the actual vampirism. It's also like this, like the fundamentalism spreads, like the fact that they are drawing people into their circle. It's a comment on zealotry. Zealotry, a hundred percent because it's like they, and again, I think it circles back to the idea of, why Riley's parents don't feed is because they're good people. Like the, the vampire blood does not make you a monster. 
it's these choices. And it's like later on at the end where the guy's like, I killed my fucking family. Yeah. You know, it's so he's crying. He's like, I just killed my kid. Or you, you just brought up Riley's parents. One of my favorite scenes in the entire work is the moment where like the house of like Bev Keen and I can't remember oh, the, yeah. the, the, the dumb like guy who the basically fixes guy. the boats yeah. and like, and more or less is like the town handyman, like make sure everything's on, on, on track. He becomes more or less like her henchman. Yeah. Um, her muscle guy, yeah. her muscle guy that it, but like they're burning down the house. We're like, uh, Katie Siegel and Riley's mom and, and his brother, his brother even. Yeah. And like, they're trying to get out of the house and his mom literally goes, Take care, like to Katie Siegel's character, like take care of the kids. I I gotta go talk to Bev, and she walks out. And man, that first moment where she looks at her and just goes, you know, I've been meaning to tell you something for a long time. You're not a good person, and you, I don't know why it bothers you that you think that God loves other people as much as he loves you. They like, love, that seems my to son really as much drive as, you crazy. Like yeah. my son, a murderer because Bev more or less tries to insult her and say like, well, look what you raised. Like if the, the quality of your parenting yeah. produced a murderer and she like, sorry, I'm getting like weirdly emotional even talking about it, but she goes, yeah, he, he is, and, and we're proud of him, and, like, we love him, and, like, so does God. Like, that's what he's there for. Like, that's why I have faith in this thing. It's not for power or money, because that's the, the other side plot that they go through with Bev Keen is that she's more or less an embezzler yeah. and built a rec center where they have these alcoholics. To launder her money. <laughs> to launder the money that, that's flowing through the church because Father Paul was incapacitated mentally, so she more or less took over and took advantage of people's faith and, and ma it made her rich and she built this entire thing so she could wash this money. But like she just goes like Riley's mom goes on this long speech to her of just like, I don't understand why it bothers you that, that, that God loves everybody as he loves a murderer. He loves, you know, a, a, a Muslim sheriff. He loves any of these people that you look down upon and think are different from you. And that's like the biggest thing that sticks in your craw is the fact that like his love shines just as, as brightly on them as it does on you. And like, you can't accept it. And the way that scene ends, I'm not going to spoil. Yeah. It's also fucking awesome. like breathtakingly gross um, and incredible. But like, it's, it sums up what you're going for is the fact that like what you were just talking about is the fact that it's like, what's the difference between having faith and being a zealot and letting your faith drive you or even using your faith to justify yeah. your, horrible your horrible things. acts that you, you, that you commit in the name of God or Jesus Christ. And he returns to that often. And this is kind of where, I wanted to get into the political stuff with Flanagan's because the one thing about Flanagan that's awesome is that he's great with themes. He's great with emotion. He's really great at digging out the, the, this kind of deeper resonance, let's call it in what we would otherwise probably just term pulp, you know, like nobody read Gerald's game and, and came away 
with like that throat fillingly. And it's the same fucking ending, but the way that Flanagan presents it is so much better than how it is in the book. It's very empowering and quite touching uh, when it goes through like the whole moon face man and, and the trial and everything at the end of that uh, movie. But like <clears throat> he, I would never call him a political guy. Like, none of his movies have even a political point of view, more or less. But this does, um, right down to, I th and I do believe that it begins with the oil spill. Like, to, that they reference and how the oil spill died. And then the company basically came in, and again, Bev Keen, more or less people. became the oil spill, like their mouthpiece, because she recognized that if they got money and got paid out, because that he is a little vague on what they're paying them out for. It more or less sounds like silence. Like, yeah, we'll we'll supplement your income as long as you don't sue us. That's what I'm more or less assuming their yeah, agreements were. But like, I'm yeah, I'm assigning what I would say, or also from like movies like you know, civil action or Michael Clayton, or right. if you've watched any of those legal thriller thrillers where like a corporation fucks up, poisoned a, t a town, Aaron Brockovich is another one where like they come that a, a, a shady bag man from that corporation always comes into the town with money in a suitcase and is like, look, as long as you don't sue us, here's 50 K, you know, yeah. and sign this paper. And that's more or less what I envisioned what happened at Crockett Island after BP or Exxon or whatever, anonymous, uh, terrible oil company like spilled and killed the entire, the, essentially their economy with the fish and everything. Yeah. And then she recognized that these people have money, but they're not going to have anything to spend it on because they're still at fucking Crockett Island. They no longer have jobs. Like there's no houses. There's no more land. Cause that's the other thing that they basically say is they've used up this island for what it is like you're you're not expanding Crockett Island so she gets them to invest in the quote unquote church and this rec center and to feel better but then about themselves to, about says. themselves yeah. so that they can empower their community but they even say it at one point like nobody knows what the fucking rec center actually cost and if everybody's getting these payouts like she got so much money and never really kind of produced the receipts more or less yeah. And probably became rich on the side. But the BP oil spill is interesting from like a political perspective because it's very much like that left-wing anti-corporate uh, notion of like they come in, they kill these small communities, which is all very true. You know, if any of these accidents happen and they're always the forgotten ones, they're the forgotten people. So you, you kind of start there. And then it, it doesn't really take any kind of stance. It's more or less doing the science versus religion, zealotry versus faith. Like it's raising its own questions, which are really the heart of the story. The, the idea of like human beings getting second chances, yada, yada, yada. But then it makes a very specific choice with one of Flanagan's trademark monologues. And it is the sheriff who gets to deliver it. A Muslim man who lives in more or less this all white community. I don't, you see like one black person. He's like that older guy who Whoa. doesn't go to church. The girl. And the little girl. And her mom. And her mom. Um, but there aren't many people of color. Let's put it that way. And like, we've already heard all this awful shit being said to the sheriff. Uh, 
by like Bev Keem and even the mayor, even though he's not being cruel. It's just, again, one of those things that white people say to people of color that is wrongheaded. Um, but he gives this monologue, this, this trademark Flanagan monologue about what it was like to be not only a brown person, but a, a, a Muslim person after 9-11 and how he signed up. He signed up to work at the towers and to, to uh, pull bodies out of it. And even then, while he was doing that, he felt judgment because that national tragedy more or less supercharged everybody's racism. And now everybody who is a person of color is a Muslim. They're a terrorist. Like that's, that's what they are now through the eyes of white America because of this horrible event that occurred. Well, what I found real interesting about it is that it's kind of drawing conclusions that another work that just came out uh, on HBO, you haven't seen Spike Lee's epicenters yet, which Spike Lee's epicenters is, is very, it's very long. It's an eight hour documentary about two things. At first, it kind of had some controversy before its release because he was quote unquote supposedly including some conspiracy theorists about 9-11 and people found that disrespectful and blah, 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 which without actually thinking to themselves about the fact that he does the same thing in his Katrina doc when the levees broke, like he actually brings people in uh, towards the end of that one who are like conspiracy theorists and think you know, more or less like Katrina was like an inside job. They, they, you know, blew up the levees to flood the black community. Like it's all, I I never understood. It was a controversy that I never understood because I was like, you didn't think that Spike Lee would give nine 11 truthers like a a moment to say, like, have you never seen a Spike Lee movie? Like that's just the, that's the most trademark spike thing to do. And he went in and said that he re-edited it and took all that stuff out. But there's bits and pieces floating around to where like a couple people say some shit about it and you're like, hmm, okay. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But his going in, I thought that his Epicenter's doc was just about 9-11. It's not. It's about COVID. The first four hours of it are about COVID and specifically the COVID outbreak in New York Mm. and how New York became the epicenter for uh, this pandemic and the horrible, the, the horrible response, you know, governor Cuomo and how it's fucking botched and uh, you know, Trump's response to it and how more or less New York just became this, as this hotbed uh, during this horrible, horrible national tragedy that you you watched it almost kill a city from the inside out while the, its its citizens scrambled to uh, deal with, with COVID when it first broke out. And like, it's really powerful affecting stuff. Um, but then four hours in, you get to 9-11. And his idea the thesis becomes more and more clear. Like all Spike Lee works, it's very scatterbrained. Like he, yeah. and he, cause he's one of those guys who's like, if Flanagan's creating a bullet with midnight mass, he's 
Spike Lee's always yeah, just been all yeah. over the place. Yeah, he's exactly. That's the best way to put it is that it's just a shotgun uh, shell full of ideas that are out there. And some you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then others you're like, well, I don't know, Spike. That we might be, you know, spread a little thin here, let's say. But the central thesis of Epicenters becomes clear is that he paints New York as the place where. It's always, regardless of what happens tragically in the United States, New York is always the hotbed. It's always the ep- the epicenter, quote unquote, right. uh, where um, the, uh, the 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 national sentiment, let's say, pours out from there, and then you can gauge what is happening in the rest of the country based on how it started in New York. And I found that interesting because I think a bit of that is inadvertently in Midnight Mass because all of a sudden, one of your heroes is this guy who was present for 9-11, experienced this incredible racism, moved to this white town to only be subjected to more subtle racism, but racism nonetheless, and then survives a pandemic that becomes the epicenter of possibly the end of civilization and is more or less in this kind of linchpin position to where he has to convince other people around him who, who used to look down on him and probably harbored some racism of their own to, to rise up and become this leader and stop this terrible plague from, from spreading to the mainland. And it was just interesting to watch the two works in such quick uh, succession because it spikes was like eight hours long. I watched it over like a week. I would watch cause that was done in like four parts and they're four, two hour blocks. So each one's like watching Oof. its own doc documentary by itself. And frankly, I mean like none of the installments are easy watches because it's just like nothing but first responders, um, people who lost like parents and shit to COVID or nine 11. He tracks down, the family of the famous jumper from nine 11, who was in the, the, falling, the, the man. falling man. And like they dissect and tried who actually, cause they never like officially identified who that was, but they more or less like track down and think that is, but I mean, all of these are not easy things to sit through. Like it's right. very, very heavy shit. Um, but Flanagan is kind of packing a very similar thesis into midnight mass inadvertently or not about this Brown man. Who's now finding himself in the epicenter of two horrible tragedies that could intersect and frankly affect the, the, the rest of uh, humanity. And I just, I found that such a a real fascinating juxtaposition, especially coming from him because he's not, a political political guy up until this point, at least not through his art, let's say. Well, and it's interesting when when you deal with religion today, like right? You're, you're it's political as well. Like they they're, Always, they're so yeah. mixed, and and maybe at a point there was in our history there wasn't the case where you could talk about it in a more general term of like the, I, like like you said the philosophical idea of like faith versus zealotry. Like you could do that, but it's like we're talking about Trump's America here, right? Like. It's inevitable. Like and this, it, this know, very much feels like a post nine eleven and now post COVID, post Trump, post Trump, <laughs> like kind of viewpoint, but too early. Because there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that like Bev Kane voted for Trump. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like 
Well, and I, I think that like you're, you're one of your favorite scenes and one of my favorite scenes as well is, you know, again, like you said, um, Riley's mother saying, you know, you're not a good person. And it's like, right. There's so many people in the world that I think a lot of us want to say that to where it's these, it's the, um, uh, holier than thou people who are destroying the planet and just, I mean, literally destroying the planet. She accepted these oil people's money. I mean, she's, she's horrible on every single fucking level. Like, and that, I think I there's moments too where I honestly think she knows that it's a fucking monster and she doesn't care because it helps her, you know. Like I I think well I think she believes she still believes in her head that she's like living a holy life. Her her ending is great. Like we get that. Well, and it's the it, I think it's the thing that makes uh, Hamish Linklater's performance so great is that I think that he knows what he's doing is wrong too. And even his central motivations might be selfish, but he pushes forward with them regardless. And you're left as like a viewer to sit there and parse out, like, what does that mean right. for this, this individual, especially an individual who has devoted their entire life to being a celibate messenger of God. Like he is married to God. That's, that's a difficult puzzle to solve. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And then here's Hamish Linklater giving you like ult like did he remind you of Goldblum at all? Like on second viewing, like I think his performance gets very Jeff Goldblum. Well, and you know why? It's the fly. Because like there's a body horror movie oh, in yeah. the center of this movie. And I was thinking about it while we're talking. I was like, why I love Flanagan too is there's like all his stories have like subplots that are like almost like their own little horror genre. Yeah. Like where you get, you get to have his, like you could do a whole show or a whole movie about a priest who becomes a vampire and is realizing the, 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 um, the limits of that, right? Oh, oh shit. You know, you could do a core comedy if you wanted, you know, like I'll keep my hand out there, but what's great about, you never hear vampire once in the film. Um, no, yeah, you're right. Zero times. Never and, once. And I'm always. But we know, like, by the rules it's playing. Exactly. And I love, I, I know it's like, I love horror that does that. And they don't even have, sure. they don't even have sharp fangs. You know, this is like, um, except for the, 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 um, the angel, the devil does, but not the people. You never see them have fangs. I thought their teeth changed, like, when they're running, when, when we get into, the final two hours and the town is they, they commit suicide, the, the Jim Jones, like mass suicide thing in the church with the, the poison they turn they and they're fully vampires. I thought their teeth changed. I could be misremembering their eyes are the main thing. Flanagan, again, a very Flanagan thing to do is the, the reflective. glowing reflective eyes. Um, he loves even Carrie like early on, like when you first see the, 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 uh, the angels, eyes on cat island she was like he really loves those glowing eyes man (laughs) (laughs) i mean she's right um but it's uh yeah there's just a lot lots to unpack yeah but no you're you you are 100 right in that they do not much like near dark one of our favorite vampire films like they don't actually we know the rules it's almost like they they like you know in that case eric red and then yeah mike flanagan both are assuming that like vampire or vampirism is, has been part of like our folklore as a, as human beings for so long that like, you know, the rules, it's almost like you don't need to say zombie 
and Walking Dead. They do, but it's like, you know what, how these fucking work. You shoot them in the head and they die and they're reanimated corpses. But like with vampirism, he's like sunlight. You get it. They drink the blood of the master. They, they get turned. Yeah. Sunlight kills you stake through the heart. Although they don't really stake anyone in no, this No, there's no full on like they, it's, they, they're not mostly just sun that kills you in this. Yeah. And what's, what's cool about it is it allows, it allows Flanagan to not get lost in horror mythology. There's right. not, there's no room in this show or this film for that. And I love a genre filmmaker who is confident enough in our knowledge to say, Mm-mm, no, like once you realize you're like, Oh, they're drinking the blood and that would make them vampires too. Like, and then you, they adds the extra thing, but they have to die first. And then we have the Jim Jones thing. It's all so like, like domino effect, And it all makes complete logical sense in the world he's created. And I just think that's like for a guy who could have, he could spend a whole episode explaining if he, you know, and he didn't yeah. have to, but he, you know? he very much is operating on the whole, like this has been part of our collective storytelling for yeah. so long as a people, like you get it, you know what's happening. Like as soon as you see the angel bite him and we realize that it de-aged the, uh, yeah. father Paul back to being, you know what he was back on that newspaper clipping that's on the wall when they found the church in like the thirties or whatever the fuck it is. Like he, he's like, you get it. You get what's happening. We're never going to use the term vampire, but like, yeah, we're all operating on the same wavelengths, right guys? Well, and it's funny cause we as an audience are like, you fucking dumbass. Like, get the goddamn vampire. Right. Like, you're, you're watching this priest be like, no, 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 it's the blood of Christ. And it's like, I'm the new Messiah. And but that's his that's his Bev Keen moment yeah. because it's the same as the rec center to where like and as you have brought up that like it's about the choice that you make like again Father Paul doesn't strike me as a dumb individual if no. anything he strikes me as a very very smart get man I he knew and it's what makes the the character so fascinating is you know what was happening you know like he you, you as a person know the choice that you're making, but you're instead choosing to, again, use your religion to justify bringing this monster back because you think, quote unquote, it'll do some good. That's, you know, that's not a great choice. Well, and it it also comes back to, um, it also comes back to, to alcohol and alcoholism because father Paul said, he's right. He goes, alcohol is not evil. You know, it's like, it's what people are, people are evil and what you do with it. The choices you make are where evil lies. It's not, so the blood here is not evil, the alcohol. And there's, there's so much, I mean, even the way that the, the vampire feeds the, the master, he's addicted. Like he, like there's that part where they come and they shine a light at him and even shoot him. And he doesn't stop feeding. He's so addicted to drinking the blood. Well, the whole end sequence where she's like, she's feeding or he's feeding on, I guess it's feeding on uh, Katie Siegel, and she's literally just cutting its wings, and it notices, like it's knowing but it won't that stop. it's going on. But it's just, yeah, it, it's it won't turn off the uh, addictive voice in its head. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's all. I mean, it's all signs of a, like a story that like you never like you ever see a film, you're like that was a second draft. Right, you watch a film, you're like, that was a first or second. Midnight Mass is the twentieth draft. This is this is the fiftieth. Like this is so, and but at the same time, it's not overbaked, you know, because you could go too far 
and try to be like, and then this, and then this connects to this, well, you know, it, uh, this is going to be my last question before for you, before we already have gotten into questions. Cause we're actually bordering on two hours already. Jesus. Time. Hey man, it's an eight hour movie. Hey, we're, yeah, <laughs> we, got, we got to get through it. But like, um, the one thing I will say with the overbaked quality, and this is the biggest complaint about the, the work as a whole is the monologues. Now I don't, 100% agree with it, but it does feel like the thing to your point that if you were going to point to anything being quote unquote overbaked, it might be that because it's it, like from Oculus to midnight mass. I can't comment on absentia because I just haven't seen it yet, yeah. but like from, let's just say from first studio movie all the way up to this massive, what now third massive thing that he's made for, for Netflix. Um, the Flanagan voice, for lack of a better term, is developing. Yeah. Like, there's even some monologue stuff in Oculus. I noticed when uh, uh, Karen uh, Jillian, she goes through, she basically lays out, again, in, in trademark Flanagan fashion, like, here's the mystery. There is no mystery anymore. Here's what happened with the mirror. And literally traces the entire history stretching back to, like, the 1800s or, right. or it's like 17th century, like a, a, a baron or something owned it first. And, but she just goes through and hits each one. And then here 1920 and here all the way up to their parents. Right. But it's very much like a mod. She's literally almost doing a stage show because they all have all, it's an interesting visual choice because she has all the cameras and stuff set up to capture um, with this very Rube Goldbergian mm, kind of contraption right. in there to, to capture the supernatural kind of entity that's coming out of the mirror so that they can have proof of it, that it, it exists. But like his writerly tendencies start to come out more and more. That's why it's something like Hush to me feels like him still kind of working out like more or less like honing his chops as like a visual yeah. storyteller. Mm -hmm. And then you get to... Ouija has it a little bit, not as much. That's still a little leaner. Like the the main one that I always think of is Hill House. Yeah. To where like, like Hill House ends on possibly still his greatest monologue that he's ever written. Um, the the Cup of Stars mm. Red Room uh, monologue, which I I can't talk about too much because I literally will start choke getting choked up and start crying like but the whole Nell thing to where he she talks about the the exuberance of life and how letting go of all of the this this horrible shit that follows you around for your existence and everything else is confetti and all that shit but it's just such a big thing you know it's a huge moment and that's how it ends though like that's how the, 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 like you've been watching this for 10 hours and he has the balls to be like, I know what you think. This is going to end in some like light and, and magic spectacle of like ghosts and shit. And there's a little bit of that, but really, no, it's just this tortured girl teaching her family a lesson through this monologue. That's gotta be at least five pages long. I think it's fucking long. Yeah. But to bring it back to the overbaked, your overbaked comment about Midnight Mass and how many drafts we've kind of gone through, I I doubt the monologues were in there ten years ago. Yeah, but 
I, they are there now because he's fi- he's figured it all out. He has his key collaborators. He has his actors, his cinematographer, his composer. He cuts all these movies. He has his wife literally as the as the star. Like he's got the people who trust him. So he's like, I'm going balls out, and like I know what my movies look like. I know what they sound like, and this is how they talk. It, like he's almost like Sorkin or, or Tarantino esque with how he writes is that like you, you listen to his movies now and like, you're like he, that, that came from one person. However, the biggest complaint with it is it's too talky. Like it, and it, it, it is, it does devolve at certain points to people just talking at one another. Like even straight up from like the first moment where Zach Guilford, who, 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 plays Riley has the whole thing where he confesses on uh, Katie Siegel's doorstep where he goes, I don't have any purpose anymore. And he just kind of goes, but like there's that there's the massive Katie Siegel monologue with where she's dying. There's also the monologue that she has in episode four about her baby and how it saved her life. Yeah. And the different, the, the, the um, conflicting notions of what happens when you die, like they kind of talk at each other. Where was it? This is a very, very long-winded way of asking you, did it get too talky for you, or did it get did that part feel over quote unquote overbaked? It it didn't for me. And part of the reason for that is to me now it is synonymous with Flanagan. Right. And so that's what I signed up for. And right. it's the same thing I signed up for with Stephen King. And because they we talked the other night about this, but Neither of them are afraid of sentiment. Like we were talking about that. I was talking about David Foster Wallace um, right. article about the fear of sentiment and how much of our media today and films are, you'll have a serious moment. You need a joke right fucking after. Was it. that part of his blue velvet deconstruction? I don't, or am I thinking of a different essay? It was a different essay, but I, li- but I like the idea. That- some of that is in, is in there with his, uh, his criticisms of, of blue velvet is the, the distance that, that Lynch holds you at. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, totally true, but there's so much, um, stuff today where we, again, back to our boy Doberman, um, like it part two is like every scary moment is, is, is followed by a yuck, yuck moment. Everyone's a Marvel. The whole Marvel universe is that tone of it. Part two has one of the most inexplicable instances of what you're describing with the fucking vomiting with that, that crazy angel in the morning song cue yep. to where you're like, what is happening right now? Or like James ransom almost being killed in the shower by the, by Henry Bowers. Yeah. And then it's like, <laughs> after it's real so fucking goofy. But, but I think that, you know, Flanagan, like his stuff has levity and there's comedy and all his stuff, but he fucking goes for it every time. I think especially if you're saying with this one and like, I wouldn't change it. I, I like, again, it's part of the, the, what Flanagan's worlds are like and people monologue. Like I don't, I'm not, well, it's I'm, like the whole, like when, uh, uh, what's her name? The little girl goes to confront Joe. Colley. Scene. Oh my God. Yeah, I hate you, Joe Colley. I hate you, but I forgive you. And it's and like, he's, he's shaking. He just, yeah, he's, she's like shooting him with like grace and it's fucking awesome. It's incredible. And you know exactly where that scene is going. Yeah. Like the whole so, time. Oh. But Robert, it's both her delivery is great. The writing's great, but also Robert Longstreet to bring him back up again. Like, 
he's just a, a mess. But I also think that he's the weird secret rep weapon in, uh, in Flanagan's arsenal, um, particularly with the levity part of it, is that anytime he's on screen, I think something he does is fucking funny. Like, though, I used the, the quote at the beginning of the episode, but, like, I've now watched this multiple times and rewound that scene where the sheriff interrupts him and the drug dealer and the drug dealers there to basically just fixing his generator and not even selling him anything. And like, he more or less threatens the sheriff and Robert Longstreet goes, he ain't mean anything. Sheriff It's fine. It's not his fault. He was born woefully fucking unfunny. And his <laughs> line delivery on that is so goddamn perfect. And also in the, the same scene too, where he goes, you know what? He's the only guy who fucking treats me like a human being. So I wish the if that means the rest of you could be drug dealers, I'd be fine with it. <laughs> like, Which is funny. That's a very kingism too. It feels like yeah. it's that. It's that very like the, he's the, the most kingy character. Well, other than Bev, Bev, but it, he's the 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 voice of the common man. The, that the, whole blue the, collar, the blue collar yeah. who has wi- more wisdom than everybody around him. He's ignored. and he's a drunk. Yeah. You know, um, he's actually very similar to the drunk character in Salem's Lot. Um, Yeah. uh, What was his name? The actor. But yeah, but who plays, who sees everything. Right. You know, even though, because he's not kind of paid attention to. But he's another death in this that's hard. Just real hard. I also realized we didn't give a spoiler warning, so sorry, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck it. But you want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. Listen easy You can hear God calling Walking barefoot by a stream Come on to me Your hair softly falling On my face is in a dream The time will be our time And the grass won't be no mine Saying nothing Lying well And we're back with questions about Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass Martin, we talked off mic, so we should let everybody else know. We're cutting it down even further with these questions because we're already over two hours, A. And B, frankly, I think one of our questions that we ask regularly just doesn't apply here. Like, nobody's going to remake this seven-hour, two-week-old Netflix series anytime soon. And it's already kind of a remake anyway of Salem's Lot, so we can just pass on that shit. Agreed. We've covered that pretty hard. But let's start. Top three Flanagan, go. I am going to say Hill House is still number one for me. Okay. Um, just because I think as much as I love Midnight Mass, Hill House, um, I like, it's a little bit more epic, you know, in, in terms of just like the characters and, and, and everyone's backstories, you get more there. Um, Midnight Mass is number two. Um for me, and then Doctor Sleep now is my number th- is three. The uh, director's cut. 
Yeah, we pretty much have the same. <laughs> um, mine's flip-flopped. I think Midnight Mass is the apex. Like, I'm on my third rewatch of a seven-and-a-half-hour movie in a week's time, and, like, there's nothing saying that the third rewatch will end and I won't go, well, I want to watch it again because I want to pick up on a couple other things right. or I notice something. I just, I really... My first viewing, I finished episode seven and was so like blown away by what I just been through that I literally, it ended and I just started one again. And I was just like, I just rewind it. Let's do it again. Hell yeah. You know, but it it is for me, Midnight Mass is one. I just think for all the reasons we kind of just laid out, it's gestated for so long. It just feels complete. It's as most satisfying as both a melodrama and a horror project. Um, it's a total bullet, which he's never really made before, which, you know, it delivers on that pulp level. It just moves when it needs to move. Um, it's, it's his ape. Like, it's yeah. just, it's like when you saw there will be blood or, or, you know, good fellas or any of those things to where like, you just recognize you're like, Oh, this was the movie that that specific auteur was was there to make. Right. You know, he, he fired it off and he got his shot and he didn't miss. So, uh, Hill houses too. I've watched that four times straight now. Um, I love it. It's one of the most affecting pieces of, of any kind of filmmaking I've ever seen in my life. I've written at length about it back uh, when I wrote for BMD and Slash Film. Um, it's just, I, I I seriously do rank it with like, I think it's it's one of the best just pieces of filmmaking in my lifetime. Yeah, like totally. I, I love, love, love it. So even putting Midnight Mass ahead of it, that shows you to just how much I actually like Midnight Mass. Is that, that's been my biggest question that I've had to wrestle with with this is that I go, is it better than the other masterpiece he already did in the same format because fuck man and we get like, to have both a, of them who cares what a fucking niche to have too think about that is that you like the the one thing we haven't really dove into and we've already gone too long so like we can't really do it right now um is that like how he's become one of the ultimate uh kind of dudes who's who's figured out his niche in the quote unquote like content era mm-hmm. where it's like he he'll make these little movies for a Blumhouse or even like a Netflix, like hush, you know? Um, but then like he figured out how he can explore, like exploit the new uh, streaming kind of uh, format to make the works that he's, frankly, always wanted to make because like no studio. And he even talked about this, how he used to carry the book around with him to like pitch meetings and stuff. But like no major studio before Netflix was making Gerald's game, you know, Dr. Sleep you get because right. that's the shining the, sequel. Yeah. We're in the, the era of IP that's instantly, uh, sellable from like any kind of pitch perspective. Like it's the, it's the 2010 to the shinings 2001, you know, it's just, here's, this sequel that came years later, possibly ill-conceived in the first place, but like it comes because 2010's like Hyams, right? That's mm-hmm. Peter Hyams too. Um, but it comes from a sturdy craftsperson who makes movies we already enjoy. So that, cause I remember when Dr. Sleep was even announced, I was like, I disliked the book so much that I was like, uh, 
fuck. Like, and really? I, and I liked the book, but I liked Flanagan, too. So I was yeah. like, was perfect. I was that, super happy. And that was after um, Hill House. Yep. And that was one of those things where I was like, well, it's this fucking guy. So, like, if anybody... Yes. Is, and he already had the track record of, like, Gerald's Game, not a great book. Turned it into a really good Mike Flanagan movie. So, like, that was my hope. And he does it. And then some, I think Dr. Sleep, that's my number three Yeah, is the director's cut two of Dr. Sleep. Because again, that feels like his most fully formed and of a piece with Hill House and, and, and now Midnight Mass is that it just feels like him totally uh, utilizing that voice he's honed just in a, in a feature length. But again, it took him releasing what like a two hour and 20 minute version that he knew like knew he'd have to cut when he essentially made his version that's an interesting director's cut too is the fact that like literally and also feels like part of the pitch that maybe how they got him to sign on is that he's like i'll make the theatrical version we'll we'll release this and like went in knowing he would have to have more or less like two cuts because it, it I wonder how much of his experience working with Netflix and developing these series and stuff informed the director's cut of Dr. Sleep because of the chapters and the way it's yeah. paced and everything is, I wonder if that was part of his deal is that he's like, Hey, like, I know you guys want to get in the streaming game and I'm more or less creating content for who, whatever studio I work for these days. So like we'll make, the 145 minute version, like I know that going in, that'll be the theatrical cut. But I'm really gonna shoot the full cut. And when this goes to streaming, we've already kind of have more content in our back pocket. Yeah. And I'll even structure it in a way that like the different experience. If they want to stop at chapter three, they can and come back tomorrow or when they're done folding laundry or whatever. Like he's just figured out a way to manipulate the system now to to Totally, basically his advantage and our benefit. It's interesting, too, um, that he, you know, being on Netflix, where they dump an entire season at once. And this, like, for instance, like Midnight Mass, like, you don't have, like, cliffhangers. No, it just, it, one it, chapter ends and you go into the next. And so it, he's, he's splitting it for our benefit, but it's, again, it's like a long, it's a movie. Versus, we were talking earlier about TV, you know, other right. types of shows better where it's like, oh, I don't, oh my God, I don't know how they're going to get out of this. Like, and the, yeah, the end of, you know, Riley dying in the boat, like, it's not did Riley die. It's like, no, you see him dying in the credits. It's like, so you're not starting on that, like, completion of what happened before, or like, oh, you know, dun, 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 what happened. He just, he's not structuring it that way. Yeah. It, this wouldn't do well, I think, on Hulu if you did like a weekly thing. Yeah, you couldn't. It is a. It is meant to be binged, and it's not a water cooler. You know, people have theories. You know about right. it. It's like no, you're gonna binge it in one fucking sitting, and, and yeah, do it. it's almost more or less like the streaming equivalent of like a beach read. Yeah, totally. Where you just yeah. totally burn through it. Next question, double feature. Go. Um, you actually mentioned this uh, in the previous section, but uh, True Detective. I was thinking um, yesterday while I was just kind of going over the show again in my head over midnight mass. And you know, the point you made earlier about this being 
uh, a story by an artist who had wanted to tell the story for a long time. Um, like you said, like True Detective was Pizzolatto's dream for, you know, for years and you could see it's fully formed. Like it's, yeah. but also just thematically, there's just a lot of, you know, similar stuff. You have the two, the, you know, two time periods, you know, this is not, it's still very Flanagan-y, the idea of two time periods in True Detective. Um, and then I think the, the pontificating of characters. I mean, yeah. like Pizzolatto ain't afraid of a fucking monologue and he should be, in, but he, he's not, but yeah, I mean, you have like, you have these, but in that first, that first season, it's great. It's so, wonderful. And I could I actually I, really like season two too, but that, I mean, it's trash. But I like I all like three. It. Yeah. I just, um, I've seen true detective six times. Um, it's like the first one. Yeah. I've never rewatched season one. I've only rewatched two. Uh, yeah, I've, I think I'm I think six or seven now. Um, but I didn't like three that much at all. I loved three, but the different discussion. But I, yeah, I would say True Detective easily. How about for you? Uh, in the bedroom. Oh, interesting. Two thousand one. Yeah. Todd Field. One of his two. I mean, in my <laughs> eyes, masterpieces. Uh, this is the Ingmar Bergman uh, move, like basically companion to his very Kubrickian. Uh, suburban Barry Lyndon, which is uh, little children. Uh, but I think he's one of the, again, one of the great working sort of filmmakers since he's finally returning and making a new feature after however many years at this point. I think it's like 15. But like, like that. Cause little children's like 06 or. I thought it was 08. But I, yeah. It's still a long time. Yeah, long it's time. very, it's Malikian. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Um, but it's just, there's a lot of textual. Uh, uh, kind of similarities. I like the fishing villages together and how they're both a heightened uh, or or elevated, for lack of a better term, kind of take on grief, family trauma, how people respond to it. And frankly, I mean, like if I could get one extra person to watch in the fucking bedroom, I'll I'll take any chance I can get because I think that movie. If from the time that I saw it at like an early preview sc- screening at the Lionville, like s- Regal out in, you know, bumfuck Pennsylvania, middle of nowhere, just randomly. It was, it was back in the day. I was telling you that this story last night or the night before um, that uh, they did a special sneak preview of some movie and in the bedroom, like they used to do back in the day is that they were like, well, if you come to this screening, we'll throw in like, a bonus feature and you basically get to watch, you can go to a a showing of that after and in the bedroom blew me away so hard that I can even tell you what the first movie (laughs) we watched that night was. So that's, that's it. Like, I just think there's a lot of similarities thematically, but the filmmaking and approach while, while impeccable is just like Todd Fields on another level, man. Yeah. You know, and he's totally making his, weird literary masterpiece the same way that that Flanagan is so and final question face melter yes or no um no um and it's interesting I think face melter we've learned does not mean good or bad um there are plenty of films out there that we both love that are not face melters and you know that's just not what Flanagan's about I mean even though you call this a bullet this is not a Sam Raimi bullet. No. <laughs> you know, like this is not hard target point break, you know, from our other episodes of just like us 
whooping and hollering. This is this is an intellectual high. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, introspective. It's, you you were you're watching it for craft and and theme. It's and emotional. Technique. It's emotional yeah. in a, like a, a very like like deep way, not in a. It's um, also very painful. Like it's yeah. a tough thing to sit. Uh, even though I've rewatched it now, I'm on rewatch number three. Like it's a tough. Yeah, there's moments that are very hard. The same reason that I I think that Hill House is is tough to yeah revisit because something that winds you up. It, on that gut level is never going to be the easiest. So I, I agree with you. Like it's not a face melter, but it is one of our great works of, yeah. of modern media. So or modern cinema, whatever we refer to this shit as now, just don't call it content. I hate that, but that wraps it up for yeah. spine number 15, man. We really went for it. Yeah, we went for it. I mean, this is long apologies to you guys, but hopefully you're still with us here now, two hours and 20 minutes in. Martin, pleasure as always. Indeed, sir. And we'll see you next time, guys, for some Western action. Stay tuned. Sous les, sous les, sous les mots Sous